This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 226 of the program. Today is Friday, January 24th, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week, and that includes Alexia Bell, Amelia Estrada, Andrew Smith, Angela, Bagamshi, Kanagundla, Chanan Suarez, Deborah Van Sant, Dennis Shoemaker, Jim Corbett, Kristen Pelly, Michael Thomas, Oaken Bernie 2020, Paul Milhot, and Stephen Moore. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. We've got a great show planned for you today. On this week's episode, Joe Biden falsely accuses Bernie Sanders' team of doctoring a video of him, and he and Bernie Sanders released competing ads when it comes to what he really said about Social Security, and also Joe Biden chooses to throw gamers under a bus. Maybe it's time gamers rise up. MSNBC brings on a crank body language expert to attack Bernie Sanders. The mainstream media tries to resurrect the Bernie bro myth, but in spite of all of this, Bernie Sanders continues to surge according to two new polls that we will talk about. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gives voters a reality check about the Democratic Party. Medicare for All gets the most important endorsement it's ever gotten. Hillary Clinton decides to attack Bernie Sanders and won't commit to supporting him if he's the nominee after browbeating all of his supporters to fall in line in 2016. And The View predictably sided with Hillary Clinton, of course. Tulsi Gabbard, however, decided to side with Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg had his Jeb Bush moment. On top of that, Donald Trump admits that he is willing to cut Social Security if he's re-elected. And finally, we talked to 2020 candidate from Oregon, Paige Kreisman, who is running to represent Oregon's 42nd district. And that's what we've got for you all. Hopefully you will enjoy the program. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Enjoy the show, guys. So Joe Biden and his people, they've got to be afraid because more and more people as time goes by are realizing that this individual is a real threat to Social Security. In fact, there's a video on Twitter that now has more than a million views where it shows him in the 90s not just admitting that he suggested cuts to Social Security, but basically bragging about it. So he knows that he's got to do damage control. He's got to come up with some type of response. And just this Saturday, I had a video where we played a clip of Joe Biden saying on numerous occasions that we either have to cut Social Security or make adjustments to Social Security, which is code for cuts. And we'll get to that. But he did finally respond to people becoming aware of the fact that he is a threat to Social Security. And he responded informally at an event when he was asked about it. And rather than just like owning it and saying, yeah, I said that, but I don't necessarily agree with it now, he is choosing to play the blame game. And he is trying to counterpunch by lying, brazenly so, about Bernie Sanders and his people. Rather than owning the fact that he has said multiple times that we should cut Social Security, he's now accusing Sanders of doctoring a video of him where he agrees with Paul Ryan that we should, in fact, cut Social Security. Take a look. 
you know, I've had phone calls, people asking me, what do you take about, does it concern you, what do you take about Joe's stance about what's going to happen to Social Security? So I'm going to ask you, what is your stance on Social Security? Well, my stance on Social Security is, let's get the record straight. I'm not going to blame anybody, but, well, let me just say the facts. There, there's a little doctored video going around saying that, put out by, should I just... Anyway, put out by one, one of Bernie's people. No, I'm serious. And I don't know if my staff has that video here, but uh, saying that I agreed with Paul Ryan, the former vice presidential candidate, about wanting to privatize Social Security. It is, and, and PolitiFax looked at it, and they, they doctored the photo. They doctored the piece. And it's acknowledged that it's a fake. And so what we're doing is we're putting out what the actual exchange between Paul Ryan and I were. And I have been a gigantic supporter of Social Security from the beginning. That was embarrassing. And he's brazenly lying. Like, this is a Trump-level lie. We have you on video saying that you want to cut Social Security. And he only cites that one video that he claims was doctored. And first and foremost, it was not doctored. And you can't even really argue that it was taken out of context because we have the full context. It's just that Joe Biden isn't the clearest speaker. So if you watch that video, it seems like he's agreeing with Paul Ryan. I think you can make that case since he has previously advocated that he wants to cut Social Security. But the idea was that, well, you know, he doesn't actually believe what Paul Ryan says when he says we should cut Social Security. He was mocking Paul Ryan, essentially. However, in that same video that he claims was doctored, he still says we need to adjust Social Security. Now, the PolitiFact article that he referenced doesn't actually say that the video was doctored, so he's being disingenuous about that. But they also say that he wasn't necessarily agreeing with Paul Ryan so much as he was mocking Paul Ryan. And look, let's just assume that that's true. Let's assume that Joe Biden wasn't saying that Paul Ryan is right to float cuts to Social Security. Fine. But in that same video, he does suggest that we have to cut Social Security by adjusting it. Watch very closely. Once again, those at the very top get the biggest breaks. And what, we, what do we have to show for it? Even our Republican friends are now beginning to admit there's no evidence these, these, these tax cuts are being put to work in the economy. No new growth, just more debt. And that puts middle-class programs that they rely on and they've worked for at real risk. Paul Ryan was correct. When he did the tax code, what's the first thing he decided we had to go after? Social Security and Medicare. Now, we need to do something about Social Security and Medicare. That's the only way you can find room to pay for it. I don't know a whole lot of people in the top one-tenth of one percent or the top one percent are relying on Social Security when they retire. I don't know a lot of them. Maybe you guys do. Do we need a pro-growth progressive tax code that treats workers as job creators as well, not just investors, that gets rid of unprotective loopholes like stepped-up basis, and it raises enough revenue to make sure that the Social Security and Medicare can stay, still needs adjustments, but can stay. It still needs adjustments. Now, maybe we can interpret that in a more charitable way, and suggest he is assuming lifting the cap on taxable income when it comes to Social Security. But if we're being realists here, 
and we take into consideration the fact that for 40 years he has floated cuts to Social Security, then I'm assuming he wants to do cuts to Social Security. And if he's someone who's truly a proponent of Social Security and protecting it and expanding it, don't you think that more frequently he would talk about lifting the cap on taxable income? Yeah. So I'm sorry, nobody believes Joe Biden when he says that he wants to protect Social Security. Over and over again, he talks about needing to make adjustments and Americans know that we have to make some hard decisions and yet he cries victim and says that Bernie Sanders doctored this video and his team doctored this video when he's busted. No, actually, you're busted. And for those of you who are wondering why we take the word adjustment as a synonym for cuts is because historically that is how politicians slimily describe cutting Social Security. As Social Security Works put it on Twitter, politicians only use euphemisms like adjustments when they really mean cut. There's no reason to use euphemisms to talk about protecting and expanding Social Security because that's incredibly popular. And what Joe Biden is trying to do, sneakily so, but it's pretty transparent, is hide behind that one video right he wants to claim that that video was doctored he's being you know misinterpreted it's, it's being taken out of context but that's one video of multiple videos where he talks about wanting to cut social security so he can try to hide behind that video and use it as some type of a red herring but there are other videos where he is very clear that he was in favor of cutting social security his own words are self-incriminating enough right because even msnbc played the video that is now being circulated everywhere. And he wouldn't dare discredit the prestigious liberal network that is MSNBC, would he? Take a look. What he does seem to be saying and talking about uh, specifically when it comes to targeting Biden as well is spending cuts, playing a video from the 90s, from 1995 of Joe Biden on the floor of uh, the Senate. They're talking about those spending cuts. Take a listen first. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. Benefit. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. All right, he's really coming after him now. Gary, what does the Biden camp do at this point? So now the question is, will he be willing to accuse MSNBC of doctoring videos as well? Again, time after time after time, throughout the course of his career, he has been very explicit in saying we need to cut Social Security. And when the Democratic Party has tried multiple times to cut Social Security, Clinton tried this, Obama and Biden tried this, but Bernie Sanders thankfully stopped them, we have absolutely no reason to trust Joe Biden. It's why he uses doublespeak to talk about Social Security. Oh, well, you know, it's a great program. We have to make sure that it remains for generations to come, although it does need some adjustments. Well, what does that mean? There's no reason to not be clear in what you mean by adjustments unless you mean cuts. There's a reason why when Bernie Sanders talks about Social Security, he is very clear in saying we need to expand Social Security because this is a popular program and you're only going to get backlash when you talk about cutting it, which is why politicians, both Republicans and Democrats, know they can't just come out and say we should cut Social Security. They have to tap dance around it because they don't want criticism. Now, Joe Biden is stupid enough to have gone on the record multiple times saying, I floated cutting Social Security. But the problem is that the internet exists to the chagrin of Joe Biden and um, we have the receipts. 
You don't. So you can come up with these types of Trumpian lies and say that Bernie Sanders' team uh, doctored this footage. But you're lying. And we know that you're lying. So to make such a bombastic claim that Sanders' team doctored this footage, I mean, it shows you how embarrassed he is of his own record that he would make up that big of a lie. But it's embarrassing. Nobody believes this. Not a single person in media believes that Bernie Sanders' team doctored this footage. So what people need to realize, what older Biden supporters need to realize who depend on Social Security, is that if you elect this individual, you are rolling the dice with your livelihood. Because when him and Obama were in the White House, they tried to cut Social Security. And that is something that we cannot let stand. So he's trying to run away from his record, but you can't run away from reality. We have the videotapes, we have the receipts, and all he has are lies that are easily disprovable. So disprovable that even the mainstream media can't run with it because they would lose all credibility. What little credibility that they have left because your lie is so shameless. So in what should be a surprise to absolutely no one, Joe Biden also happens to have a really antiquated stance on video games. Like Donald Trump, he believes that they don't just make people more violent, but that they literally train people how to kill. Not making this up, wish I were. So as Holly Corrigan of IGN reports, Joe Biden, the former vice president and 2020 candidate for the president of the United States, has shared some harsh thoughts on Silicon Valley game developers, as reported in a wide-reaching interview with the New York Times. When asked about the Obama administration's legacy on Silicon Valley regulation, Biden talks about meeting with leaders in Silicon Valley to discuss intellectual property rights and describes interacting with an unspecified game developer as, quote, one of the little creeps who make games that, quote, teach you how to kill people. Quote, at one point, one of the little creeps sitting around that table who was a multi close to a billionaire who told me he was an artist because he was able to come up with games to teach you how to kill people, you know, the said Biden. The reporter interrupted Biden at this point to clarify he was talking about video games to which he agrees. The New York Times did not appear to press Biden on specifying which game developers he met with or to elaborate further on his thoughts. Biden's views on violent video games aren't surprising. Back in 2013, when he was vice president, he vocally saw no legal problem taxing violent media. That year, the Gaming Association even published an open letter asking him to look at studies suggesting there's no link between violence and video games. Now, I had to read this multiple times because it seemed like Joe Biden was describing an anecdote where a game developer said that he was an artist specifically because he made games that train people how to kill. Now, that doesn't make sense to me, and I don't even believe that story, but reading it again, I realized that that was Joe Biden supplementing that story with his own commentary. So what probably actually happened was he met with a game developer who said that, you know, they view their video games as art, and Joe Biden was kind of scoffing at that notion in his own head uh, by saying, what, you think it's art because you train people how to kill? Um, so he needs to be more clear. He needs to be more clear, and it shows you why he's having issues with um, people misinterpreting what he's saying. He is currently 
you know, in the process of the spat with Bernie Sanders people because he claims that they doctored a video of him where he supposedly agrees with Paul Ryan about wanting to cut Social Security. Now, when I first saw that video, it did seem like he was, in fact, agreeing with the notion that um, we should cut Social Security. In that same video, he does say we should make adjustments, but I guess that he wasn't agreeing with Paul Ryan, but was mocking Paul Ryan. It just goes to show you that there's going to be issues because Joe Biden doesn't know how to communicate properly. So he is clearly in cognitive decline. I'm trying to be as polite as I possibly can here in describing him. And he has to be more articulate. He has to be. Because you basically just described a situation where it seemed like you're saying some video game, game developer was like, yo, dude, I'm an artist because I like train people how to kill, bro. I mean, that's not the situation at all. So he needs to be more clear. Now, getting to the substance of this story, if he just said, look, there are many problems with the video game industry and he left it there i would have no problem with that because i agree i think the video game industry it doesn't treat workers kindly there's a lack of uh unionization right there is a lot of exploitative practices uh abuse of employees crunch times and whatnot that's unacceptable and when it comes to you know their anti-consumerism there's predatory practices such as loot boxes that are abundant now ea is an is a company that should be regulated into oblivion because they constantly they prey on customers basically um there's dlc packs that they basically remove from games so they can sell it back to customers right when it should have been part of the original game so there's a lot of issues with the video game industry but is it the case that they are training people to be violent and literally kill obviously no that's not the case that is not a position that even makes sense given the studies and what they say study after study has shown that there is no link to violent video games and increased aggression in teenagers and they don't cause real world violence contrary to popular belief and even though increased exposure to video games may make people more desensitized to violent imagery that doesn't necessarily mean that people will go out and do violence now studies also show that video games can reduce stress and on top of that researchers find that there are cognitive benefits to playing video games so no violent video games do not lead to violence and they don't teach people how to kill certainly this is something that out of touch idiots like to say and these are the people who don't even know about nuance like they don't even know that there are games like tetris that exist right they just think that the only video games that are out there are grand theft auto and call of duty these violent video games and uh that's it but you want to know what does cause real-world violence, Joe Biden? When you vote for wars, like the Iraq War, for example. So it's just an idiotic thing to say. And he came from the administration that had a literal kill list. Like, Obama had a kill list. And you're, you're concerned about violence now, all of a sudden? The glorification of violence is something that the United States government does. And, you know, on top of that, Joe Biden is trying to uh, run against Donald Trump. But this is another area where he agrees with Donald Trump, who blamed violent video games for a mass shooting. This is what Trump said recently. We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. We must stop or substantially reduce this, and it has to begin immediately. So he sounds just like Joe Biden. 
So, um, you know what? I'm sick and tired of politicians using video games as a scapegoat for society's problems. I'm just sick and tired of scapegoating, generally speaking. Uh, Joe Biden is so out of touch, it is painful. And this shouldn't surprise anyone that he has this stance. In fact, back in 2008, when I was going to enthusiastically vote for Obama and did, one of the issues with Joe Biden that I had, and the issue that I had with Obama choosing Joe Biden as the nominee was his stance on video games. He also has a history of making comments about video games that, uh, you know, imply that they lead people to be more violent. And I've always been a gamer. Gamers rise up, and we may after this. But, um, yeah, you know, it's just, it's incredibly irritating, and this is why, if you are a gamer, if you are a young person who hears Joe Biden saying this, I need you to understand that this is someone who might win. Joe Biden can win. So you have a chance of stopping this idiot who wants to demonize your hobby and all you have to do is vote for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is in second place. He has the best shot at beating Joe Biden and beating Donald Trump. So, I mean, if this makes you angry, then it should encourage you to support someone like Bernie Sanders who has not made statements like this. And if he has, I would disagree with them. But to my knowledge, Bernie Sanders doesn't scapegoat anything. He looks at these issues and he tries to find the real underlying causes and doesn't just use bombastic rhetoric and shoot off the hip and just... Like, pull things out of his ass, right? That's what Joe Biden is doing here. So, I mean, there's issues with Silicon Valley and a lack of regulation. The video game industry has a ton of issues. If you listen to Jim Sterling on YouTube, he talks about how capitalism has negatively influenced video games, and it's basically ruining the video game industry. But is the video game industry the reason why there is violence in America and around the world? No. Absolutely not. But um, I'm honestly not surprised that Joe Biden said this, and really nobody should be surprised at this point, because Joe Biden has put his foot in his mouth now approximately 153,000 times throughout the course of this race, and I'm sure he's going to say uh, four to five more out-of-touch things just within the next hour, because that's, you know, the rate that we're going. So it's just, it's stupid, um, it's idiotic, and Joe Biden is just, he's so out-of-touch he shouldn't be this close to victory. He should be permanently delegitimized, but the fact that he even has a shot shows that we're in pretty bad shape in America. So for the time being, it seems like this whole Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren debacle is over because on MLK Day, Elizabeth Warren finally decided to shake Bernie Sanders' hand and they were seen marching side by side, being incredibly friendly towards one another. They're seen here laughing. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is with them. So it seems as if, you know, Bernie Sanders is an incredibly forgiving person. And whatever differences that they both had, he has chosen to put that aside. Now, look, admittedly, I'm still salty. But... I acknowledge that it's important that we move on, and that was basically my sentiment in my video that I put out on Friday. Although the media, since they were thirsty for more of this story, they desperately tried to find ways to extend the life of this story. And probably the most embarrassing example that we got came from MSNBC, uh, specifically Joy Reid, who decided to bring on 
a body language expert to prove that Bernie Sanders was indeed lying. Now, the only other news network irresponsible enough to platform this grifter was, of course, Fox News, uh, Lou Dobbs specifically. So, I mean, that tells you everything that you need to know about MSNBC. But I don't even really have to try that hard to go out of my way to prove to you that this person is a loon because I think that she does that all by herself in this clip um and i'm not even that mad this is just uh it's so bad that it's funny take a look scandals m hurt you more when they seem plausible right? right i mean bernie sanders does have a sort of physicality you know when he when he talks that yes. is a shaking your finger yes. at hillary clinton yes. shaking your finger shovey weirdy you know his his physicality yes. makes me think yeah he could have said you know listen i think in this environment a woman can't win that doesn't seem like a crazy well first of all i think he, i think bernie's lying we see him he slouches forward anyway joy but here he turtles if you look at his eye level where he normally answers questions when he makes the denial his whole shoulders come up like a little kid getting caught his eye level is below his shoulders this is trying to hide in plain sight and many of us we don't know what to look for so if you look for this right out of the gate and the strongest denial is simply saying no and i think women in particular we want to believe human beings so we're like yeah i would i would say that he literally said well as a matter of fact i didn't say it that's nine words unnecessary no did you vote for donald trump in the last election absolutely no right <laughs> So, no, did you dress up as an Easter money and Easter? Absolutely not. Right? So it's no. We say no. Absolutely is actually not the strongest denial. You're, you're playing with me here in the game. But at least you're getting the no in here. We're not hearing the no with Bernie. Also with Bernie, he has numerous hotspots. He says, well. Mm -hmm. Liars like to start with well. He looks mm -hmm. away. He laughs. I think he might have been coached to laugh in this moment. A lot of politicians are coached to laugh in the difficult times. So we're focused on the laughter. And, and it's supposed to send a message that this isn't serious. It is serious. If he said it, which I believe that he did, he would have been better to just own it. Uh, you know, Barack Obama wrote a book years ago, years ago, and he said what in the book? He tried cocaine and marijuana, and he never touched the stuff again. We never talked about it when he was president after that. If Bernie just owned it, this would disappear. We wouldn't be talking about it six days later. But Bernie, he did the opposite. Again, that was on MSNBC, a supposedly credible news network doing pseudoscience to smear Bernie Sanders. Now, um, this body language expert claims that she believes Bernie Sanders is lying because he was turtling and he was like a little kid getting caught. And she says his eye level is below his shoulders. Now, as many people pointed out, and I can't believe that Joy Reid didn't say this or call her out on this, but she was basically describing a Jewish caricature, like an anti-Semitic trope of a Jewish person in talking about Bernie Sanders and how his eye level was below his shoulders. Um, so, I mean, for Joy Reid being one of the wokest people on television, how did she let that pass? Did she miss it? Did she not know? Did this uh, supposed body language expert know what she was doing? Because Joy Reid will call any and everything sexist, but to not call out brazen anti-Semitism, even if it was unintentional... I mean, seems like they're willing to allow Bernie Sanders to be the subject of bigotry, and that's fine. But anyone else, they're going to call it out. So, I mean, that was embarrassing. But um, my favorite part was when this pseudoscientist's entire grift kind of fell apart because she claimed that the strongest denial is to just simply say no. But because Bernie Sanders used nine words 
to deny that he said that, well, that makes his claim that he was telling the truth that much more implausible. So then she tested out that theory on Joy Ann Reed, and Joy Ann Reed inadvertently disproved what she was saying <laughs> because she asked Joy Reed, look, did you vote for Donald Trump? Did you dress up as the Easter bunny on Easter? And Joy Reid said, absolutely no, twice. So maybe you're wrong because Joy Reid didn't just say no. She said, absolutely no. And then she had to point out, absolutely isn't the strongest denial, actually. <laughs> but, but I mean, Joy Reid obviously was telling the truth. We know that Joy Reid didn't dress up as the Easter Bunny. We know that she didn't vote for Donald Trump. So maybe absolutely is a stronger denial. And in fact, like if somebody is brazenly lying about me, then I think I would say more words because of how outraged I am that they're just lying about what I said. So this body language expert, so-called body language expert, doesn't take into account the fact that we all have unique personalities and how to read body language is not universally applicable. There's no specific science to it. We all have subjective ways of interpreting one's body language, so it's just embarrassing. And on top of that, she claims that Bernie Sanders was coached to laugh to distract us from the fact that he was lying. Yes, the least coached politician ever uh, was apparently laughing specifically to distract us from the lie. Absolutely absurd. And maybe Joy Reid should have brought on this body language expert to coach her when she got busted posting old homophobic blog posts and she decided to lie about it, alleging that maybe her blog was hacked. Now, look, <laughs> that's a different story for a different day. We talked about this on the show before, but I think that the consensus on the left was we don't care that you made those homophobic blog posts. If you own up to it and you just say, look, yeah, I made those posts, but I no longer agree with it. I mean that's fine. Everybody would have just moved on. But because you chose to lie about it and claim that you were hacked, it made the situation that much worse for you. So maybe rather than bringing on body language experts to prove that Bernie Sanders lied, prove that he lied, maybe you should have brought on that individual to help coach you to lie better, Joy, because you are a liar and people see right through you. Now, look, I'm not worried about this segment because I think that in and of itself, it's self-defeating. Like, it's just embarrassing and nobody's going to believe this. But let's have some fun because Twitter did what Twitter usually does, and they dug up old tweets from this supposed body language expert and found what you would expect from any crank. Of course, she is an anti-vaxxer posting anti-vaccine propaganda on Twitter. She shared an article <laughs> which claimed Obama ordered the CIA to train ISIS. Very, very interesting uh, from a credible source. On top of that, she is just personally incredibly biased because she's a friend of Joe Biden. She had dinner at his house. So, I mean, it doesn't get more biased than that. And to show you just how deep her analyses usually go, this is one of the videos that she is proud of because she pinned this video to her Twitter page. So, apparently, there's a lot of information that we can ascertain about someone just based off of the color of the clothing that they wear. Take a look. Orange, listen, it's tricky because it's connected with activity and caution, which sometimes gives people this energy boost, right, when we drink it, but other times it holds people back and says proceed with caution. I want you to think about it. You're driving down the highway, highway, I said that's so funny, the highway, and you see these orange cones. It says slow down, but yet we also have the color orange with speeding up with what? Gatorade. You see sports people have orange. You see a lot of uniforms with athletes in orange. 
That orange color is tricky. That's probably why we don't see it a lot in the red carpet. Are you wearing orange? I gotta tell you, I had an orange wall, an accent wall in my TV room up until five days ago when I realized my three sons are orange kids. I said, I have orange running around my house all over Kingdom Come. I don't need an orange wall. I have orange kids. Orange can be a little too much. So slow your roll on the orange, especially if it's a top bottom matching orange, you might just be sending the message, caution, I could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next on MSNBC, Joy Reid brings on a psychic who knows a ghost who was in the room at the time when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had this conversation. And you're not going to be surprised to find out that that ghost says Bernie Sanders is definitely lying. I mean, that's the point that we're getting to. It's not that much more ridiculous than what we saw here. Body language expertise is not a real science. It's not a real expertise. This is a grift. This is pseudoscience. And there are certainly useful things at an individual level that we can ascertain about body language. For example, it seems to me that Bernie Sanders was telling Tom Steyer to fuck off in this video here. But I mean, of course, that's subjective. That's because I don't like Tom Steyer and want him to tell Tom Steyer to fuck off. But in reality, that's just speculation. Again, body language is something that, you know, it, it's important when we're communicating. There are social cues that we can take from someone's body language to tell that they're uncomfortable and whatnot. But I mean, there's a line to be drawn. And this body language expert crossed that line. Of course, you can't tell definitively that Bernie Sanders was lying because he said nine words to deny that he said that instead of just saying no. I mean, Joy Reid proved you wrong because she said absolutely no. She used more than one word. So, I mean, it, it's just a joke, and it goes to show you that the mainstream media is so desperate to extend the life of this story and paint Bernie Sanders in a negative light that they are willing to bring on loons to prove that Bernie Sanders is a bad person. But guess what? It's not going to work. And if anything, I think that this is going to help Bernie Sanders because it just shows how desperate you all are to paint him negatively. Shameful, but I mean, Joy Reid has proven that she has no shame, so I look forward to the segment where she literally brings on a psychic to talk about ghosts who uh, have some dirt on Bernie Sanders. Like, this is literally coming at the rate that we're going. So, for part of an MLK Day event, writer and activist ta Coates was talking to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she dropped a number of truth bombs that I think are... So important, um, not just because the Democratic Party needs to hear this, but because um, this is actually probably going to piss them off, quite frankly. But everything she's saying here is 100% accurate, and I like hearing her say this because it makes me feel vindicated because I've been saying these things on the program now for years. But finally, she is saying this, and she has a bigger platform than I do. So normal people need to understand that the United States of America is not the only country in the world. And when you compare our Democratic Party and our country to the rest of the world... It gives you some much-needed perspective, and she's going to drop a truth bomb in the sense that she's going to tell us what the Democratic Party really is in actuality. Take a look. In what you said earlier, too, I wanted to go back um, to what you said about our left party. We don't have a left party mm. in the United States. Mm. The Democratic Party is not a left party. Mm. Mm. Um, the Democratic Party mm. is a center or center conservative party. Mm. We do not advocate for, we do not, 
we can't even get a floor vote on Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Not even a floor vote that gets mm -hmm. voted down. Mm -hmm. We can't even get a vote on it. Mm -hmm. So this is not a left party. Mm -hmm. There are left members inside the Democratic Party mm -hmm. that are working to try to make that shift happen. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right, it does convey a certain uh, sentiment about true believers. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there are a lot of true believers in that we can capitalism our way out of poverty mm -hmm. um, in the Democratic Party. If mm -hmm. anything, that's probably the majority. Right. Um, and that's an area in which I agree with Dr. King mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that assessment is flawed. Mm -hmm. um, that was absolutely amazing. <laughs> Everything she said there is correct. The Democratic Party is not a left party. They are a center-to-center conservative party. That is exactly true. And people need to realize why this is the case. Take the issue of Medicare for All as an example. That was great for her to bring that up. We can't even get a vote on Medicare for All, even though we know it would be defeated probably. We can't even get a vote on it. And we have a Democrat as the Speaker of the House. Democrats are so out of line with the actual left, it's preposterous to say that the aggregate Democratic Party is left-wing. I mean, think about this. So, even the Conservative Party in Canada and the Tories in the UK are to the left of Democrats on the issue of healthcare. Because, you know, they may want to covertly undermine their universal or single-payer healthcare systems, but they can't do it openly, right? They have to try to find ways to nibble around the edges and privatize it increasingly so that way they can get around public opinion, which would not like that, right? But Democrats, you have so many of them who aren't just openly hostile towards the notion of Medicare for all and single payer, but they're literally running against it and they want to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, the party that is widely viewed as the left party. That is preposterous. That would never happen. Can you imagine Justin Trudeau running against Canada's single-payer system? Can you imagine the labor leader running against a nationalized healthcare system, saying, I'm going to undo that so you have freedom of choice between public and private? I mean, the prospect of that is laughable. They would never do it. They would get obliterated. These parties would be wiped out. But yet, here in the United States, the notion that healthcare should be free at the point of service is something that is mocked. And all of the mainstream media agrees that Medicare for All is a bad idea when most of the de developed world has it. Now, again, that's not to say that these systems are protected because even in Australia, they've had a universal healthcare system, but they are increasingly privatizing it and it's getting worse. But if you honestly are looking to find anyone who is openly saying, I'm going to fight against single payer as they do in the United States, that politician's career would be done immediately. But yet we have Amy Klobuchar calling it a pipe dream. We have Joe Biden fear-mongering about the cost as he votes for war after war after war. And it's infuriating. People have to understand that the Democratic Party is not a real left-wing party. And the only reason why they focused so heavily on being woke 
and focused on social issues is because that is the only like that's the only set of issues that won't offend their corporate donors. So they can talk about women's rights, they can talk about LGBTQ rights and not offend anyone in the corporate class because corporate America has largely embraced um, a lot of these social issues. But when it comes to something like economic rights, Medicare for all, having the right to see a doctor if you get sick, well, um, they're against it. Isn't that insane? And what's funny to me is that the Democratic Party, they desperately try to get the moral high ground, so they co-opt language from proponents of Medicare for All, and they say something like, oh, well, I believe healthcare is a right. Tom Perez says this, the DNC chair. But I'm sorry, if you truly believe that healthcare is a right, then you believe that it should be free at the point of service, because something that's a right can't be denied to someone or shouldn't be denied to someone if they don't have a dime to their name. So if you're homeless or you're an immigrant, if you don't have money, you can't see a doctor? Does that sound like a human right? No. So everything she says is just, it's on point, and I'm so glad she made this point, because when I say it, you know, it, my audience knows that that's true, but when she says it, it reaches a broader audience. People who respect her, who don't necessarily follow left circles like you and I, they start to really think, well, yeah, maybe that's true. Medicare for all is something that other types of countries have or, or, or a type of thing that other countries have and we should have that. Yeah. And she also says that they think that we can just capitalism our way out of poverty and other issues. This is the crux of the issue with Democrats. They are neoliberal to their core, right? Even someone like Elizabeth Warren, who the media, I think, incorrectly views as far left, she stood up and applauded Donald Trump when he said that we'll never be a socialist nation. We are so, so detached from the rest of the world and other countries. Like, I, I, I always see comments, like, on Reddit or Twitter from people who live in countries with a single-payer system saying, I don't know how you guys put up with this bullshit. Like, why aren't you in the streets? Because healthcare should be free at the point of service. Like, this is something that nobody else worries about. Other countries, their citizens take this for granted. But we have to beg the left party to get on board with this it's just it's infuriating and um people need to know that the democratic party is not a left party they're a centrist and then we have a republican party who is far right now shifting gears a little bit um she talked about something else she was asked about billionaires and you know why is it that you know she's against billionaires basically i think that ta coates was basically playing devil's advocate here and um she was asked about you know the prospect of someone earning a billion dollars and her response here was just brilliant. Why specifically does, you know, I'm, I'm Joe Billionaire. I made widgets. I sold those widgets. I made mm -hmm. billions of dollars, you know, yeah. selling those widgets, making those widgets. Therefore, those billions of dollars are right. mine. Why am I the enemy of health? Well, uh, you didn't make those widgets, did you? Mm. Because you mm. employ thousands of people and paid mm. them less than a living wage mm. to make those widgets for you. Mm. You didn't make those widgets. Mm. You sat on a couch while thousands of people were paid modern-day slave wages, and in some cases, real slave, real modern-day slavery, uh, depending on where you are in, our, in, in terms of food production. Um, you made that money off, off the backs of undocumented people. You made that money off of the backs of... Um, black and brown people being paid off a living wage, under a living wage. You, you made that money off of the backs of single mothers. And who, 
all of these people who are literally dying because they can't afford to live. And so no one ever makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. No one ever makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. That's just... That's slow clap worthy. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly it. Um, if you made a billion dollars, you're either exploiting the labor of your workers, you are gaming the system, taking advantage of tax loopholes, buying politicians... You can't work hard enough to earn a billion dollars. And even if you could, which you can't, but even if you could, you shouldn't have a billion dollars because that is so much money. That is such an unfathomable amount of money that even if you lived to be a thousand years old, you couldn't possibly spend all of that money. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has done more to shift the Overton window to the left than perhaps almost every single politician, with the exception of Bernie Sanders. Her electoral victory shows you why beating all of these incumbent Democrats, primarying them, is worthwhile. Which is why we have to go for the top. Take out the leaders, right? Support Michaela Wilkes, who's running against Steny Hoyer. Support Shahid Buttar, who's running against Nancy Pelosi. And support the bevy of congressional candidates running across the country, primarying these corporate Democrats, so that way we actually can remake the Democratic Party in our own image. Make a party that's actually left-wing so we don't have just two right-wing parties to choose from. We actually have a left-wing option in every election, not just in some elections where you're lucky enough to have a progressive running. So I'm glad that AOC said this. It's incredibly true. And to you and I, this is not going to be surprising. She's not saying anything that's groundbreaking. But to the average American who will hear her say this, to them, this is something that they probably hadn't considered before, and this is, you know, something that you have to say if you're going to make the case for left-wing ideas, because the prospect of Medicare for All seems scary to someone who doesn't know that this is common throughout the world. So educating people, letting them know that the United States doesn't just exist in a vacuum, it is one country among many, and this isn't some new thing. Medicare for all is single payer, and that is not a new concept. It's tried and true. It works. This would save lives. So we just have to get people to rethink about politics or think about politics for the first time and get them to understand that it's not just, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. This is large moneyed interests against us because the Democratic Party, they're not selectively against the left. They've been bought into the positions that they currently hold. And I don't just mean that electorally, I mean that ideologically as well. They believe Medicare for all is bad, well, because they take money from the industry and maybe they don't even believe that. Does Amy Klobuchar actually believe that Medicare for all is bad? I mean, it's so common sense that you... You find it hard to suggest that someone could be stupid enough to believe that, right? Or Joe Biden could be stupid enough to believe that the status quo is going to be cheaper in the long run than a Medicare for all. Like, they have to be either dumb or disingenuous. It's one of two options. But either way, people need to hear about the truth, and AOC is doing that. And I hope that, uh, you know, this is uh, spread far and wide because people who vote Democrat, who are loyal to the Democratic Party need to know that this is not a party that is looking out for you, and they're certainly not left-leaning. They're a centrist, 
to center conservative. So I think that with how close it is to Iowa, you know, everyone's really worried. Tensions are high and we are trying to do whatever we can to make a last ditch effort to convince some of Joe Biden's supporters to flip and support Bernie Sanders because this individual is weak against Donald Trump. And uh, Zephyr Teachout made that case in an op-ed for The Guardian where she points out how corrupt Joe Biden is and why that makes him weak against Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump will weaponize said corruption and he will beat Joe Biden over the head with it in the same way he did to Hillary Clinton. And guess what? It's a believable case because it's true. So what Zephyr highlights is three instances where Joe Biden is just brazenly corrupt. First and foremost is all the favors that he did for the credit card industry while he took their money. The second is how he's crafting policies that keep the current for-profit health insurance companies in place while letting them host fundraisers on his behalf. And the third is how he's allowing fossil fuel executives to host fundraisers on his behalf while maintaining that he is going to do something about climate change. Look, all of this is corrupting. We're not talking about a quid pro quo, but what we're talking about is, you know, a system where you are allowing special interests that you are theoretically going to be regulating if you become president to help you get into positions of power. They're doing a favor for you. So do you honestly expect us to believe that you're going to actually hold them accountable when they helped you get to that position? Of course not. But the thing is that we've become so accustomed to this type of legalized bribes in America that it's just, it's not something that anyone even thinks about any longer. It's normalized. Nobody even questions it. So when the left actually points out the corruption of Republicans and corporate Democrats, well, centrists utterly lose their mind. So everything that Zephyr Teachout said in that op-ed is 100% correct. And it really blew up once uh, David Sirota, who is the speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, shared it in his daily newsletter titled The Burn Notice, which I am subscribed to. I absolutely enjoy it thoroughly. I would recommend that you subscribe to us to it as well. But um, he shared this out uh, in an email and then centrists decided to feign outrage. You had Paul Krugman suggest on Twitter that this is really what makes Democrats distrust Bernie Sanders. Never mind the corruption that makes us distrust Democrats. Pointing out the corruption is what makes them distrust us. Do you understand how everything has been turned on its head? I mean, it's just, it's, it's laughable. It's laughable at this point, right? The argument that they're making. But what I want to talk about is the response from Bernie Sanders' people, because I don't believe he did the correct thing here in responding. Rather than making the case as to why Joe Biden is corrupt, not only did he say Joe Biden is not corrupt, but he apologized. So basically, I think that Bernie Sanders had the worst possible response here. Take a look. Zephyr uh, is doing a great job for us and She's a wonderful surrogate, but on this issue, I strongly disagree. Look, Joe Biden is a friend of mine. I've known him for many, many years. He's a very decent guy. And Joe and I have strong disagreements on a number of issues, and we'll argue those disagreements out. Uh, but it is absolutely not my view that Joe is, is corrupt in any way. Uh, and I'm sorry that that uh, op-ed appeared to me. No, this is not the right move. Look, I can see that when Hillary Clinton you know, attacks you. I see the value in you just kind of letting that roll off your shoulders because she doesn't matter. 
Joe Biden is your primary opponent, and you have to make a really strong case against him, and you have to call out one of his weaknesses, because you have to make the case that you are more electable than him, because electability is one of his strengths, and I don't believe he's electable, but voters view him as electable. So you have to disprove that in showing that he is in fact corrupt, because guess what? He's corrupt. But what you just did is gave him a gigantic pass that he does not deserve. We should all be focusing and fixating really on Joe Biden's corruption because he has a history of being openly corrupt, doing favors for his donors, and Bernie Sanders just let him get away scot-free. No. Not only does this make Bernie Sanders look weak, but it hurts him. He's going up against Joe Biden Make your case against Joe Biden. Make the case for yourself. Make the case that you're not taking money from special interests. And that's why you're going to be better to represent people. Like, Bernie Sanders wouldn't be raising money by not taking super PAC money and just doing this via small grassroots contributors if he didn't think that those donations from special interests were corrupting. So first and foremost, I don't believe Bernie Sanders believes this. And second of all, it's just bad strategically speaking. Like, stand your ground, Bernie. So when I saw this, it really frustrated me because Bernie Sanders is just a genuinely nice person. And he may be nice to a fault where it actually hurts him because this is a primary. So Joe Biden, of course, responded to this because he just was exonerated when he shouldn't have been. And he said, thanks for acknowledging this, Bernie. These kinds of attacks have no place in this primary. Let's all keep our focus on making Donald Trump a one-term president. These kind of attacks have no place in a primary. Imagine calling out some of the negative aspects that will make you weak against Donald Trump. That has no place in this primary. It's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Because what I've been advocating for months, especially, you know, on that debate stage, is for Bernie Sanders to go all in and, you know, call out Joe Biden's corruption. And he won't even let surrogates do it. It's incredibly disappointing. And voters, you know, if data tells us anything, they absolutely value strength in candidates. It's why Kamala Harris got that boost after the first debate when she went after Joe Biden hard because she looked strong. She was decisive. So, I mean, it just makes no sense to me why Bernie Sanders is letting Joe Biden off scot-free. Do not let him off. He is corrupt. And look, we shouldn't have to rely on candidates to make this case entirely because it's just a fact that Joe Biden is the errand boy of elites, right? And the media should be calling him out. In fact, the media in 2008 actually did hold Joe Biden somewhat accountable. After Obama announced that he chose Joe Biden as the VP, the media did call attention to all of the things that Joe Biden did that benefited the credit card industry when there was this massive conflict of interest. For example, look at this clip from Meet the Press with Tom Brokaw calling out Joe Biden's corruption to his face. Those of his son, Hunter, who is 38 years old, and that's a reference to uh, your son being hired right out of law school by a big company here in uh, Delaware that is in the credit card business, MBNA. They, he got about $100,000 a year, as I recall. Uh, you received $214,000 in campaign contributions from the company and from its employees. Uh, at the same time, 
you were fighting for a bankruptcy bill that uh, MBNA really wanted to get passed through the Senate, making it much tougher for everyone to file bankruptcy. Uh, Senator Obama was opposed to the bill. Among other things, uh, you couldn't, in fact, claim that you had a problem because of big medical bills. Uh, you voted against uh, an amendment that would call uh, for a warning on predatory lending. Um, you also called for Oh, um, you opposed efforts to strengthen the protection of people in bankruptcy. This has been an issue that you've heard about before. Uh, your son was working for the company at the, at the same time. In retrospect, wasn't it inappropriate for someone like you in the middle of all of this to have your son collecting money from this big credit card company while you were on the floor protecting its interest? Absolutely not. My son graduated from Yale Law School. The starting salary in Wall Street is $140,000 a year if he went to lawyer. Options he had. He came home to work for a bank. Surprise, surprise. Wow, I can't believe that Tom Brokaw would attack Joe Biden by pointing out the very obvious fact that he's corrupt to the core. So, I mean, that's what we saw in 2008. But now, when you point out said corruption, the media runs interference for Joe Biden. Case in point. What Joe Biden's Are you record saying he's has corrupt been. on Social Security? No, what I'm saying is that repeatedly over the past 40 years of his career, he has had no hesitation to make efforts to cut Social Security, to raise the retirement age. What about age. the corruption and this is a problem? Conversation. What, about, what about saying he has a corruption problem? I think that how you characterize that is, is up to the voter, and that's fine for them to decide. But what's important is for us to have a conversation I'm, on I'm TV, sorry. not I'm about conflict between what, what does candidates. that mean to let the voter decide about a corruption problem? Because this, your speechwriter is promoting this op-ed that's written by a surrogate that says Bernie Joe Biden has a corruption problem, and I'm just not. A, is that is that a campaign sanctioned thing? Does the campaign believe that Joe Biden has a corruption problem? What the article describe, is describing is the fact that Joe Biden has made deals with Republicans repeatedly over the course is of his corrupt? career in order to cut Social Security and to raise the retirement but is that age. Corrupt? And if and if someone wants to describe that that is corrupt, that is up to them. But what I am saying right now is that instead of trying to instigate disputes between candidates on I'm not semantics, it. It, was written in, it was written in the Guardian and promoted by your speechwriter. That's it's not fair me. Enough. I'm just asking you about it. The answer is yes, he is corrupt, and we shouldn't have to be educating the media about Joe Biden's corruption. The media should be educating voters about his corruption. If you don't want to call it corrupt explicitly. Fine, don't use that word, but point out all of the campaign contributions that he has taken from special interests. Call out how he's doing all of these fundraisers with billionaires and elites in the Hamptons. Point out how after taking money from the industry, he has done favors for credit card companies. He's made it more difficult for us to file bankruptcy because he's doing their bidding, probably because he took their money. I mean, connect the dots, people. So, I mean, look... <sighs> This is so frustrating to me. Bernie is not going about this the right way. He's being incredibly weak here, and I think foolishly so. Do I think that overall this will hurt Bernie Sanders? I don't necessarily know, but I, I can't see this helping him. By giving Joe Biden a pass, you are essentially legitimizing his corruption, Bernie, and you can't do that because we know you know that he's corrupt. Otherwise, you wouldn't be touting the value of not taking billionaire donations and raising money through small grassroots donations. So it's just incredibly frustrating. Bernie has got to once and for all be strong. And I have no doubt in my mind that he would be strong against Donald Trump. But you have to prove to voters that that would be the case. And being weak 
just like bowing your head and getting cucked by Joe Biden isn't going to prove to them that you're going to be strong against Donald Trump. If anything, you're showing voters that Joe Biden is strong because he got you to back down by basically having stooges in the media whine about him being called corrupt when it's a fucking fact. So, I mean, it's, it's frustrating. I want Bernie Sanders to call him out. I want him to explicitly say Joe Biden is corrupt because he is. But I mean, Joe, uh, Bernie Sanders is just, he's, he's a nice person and he's too nice. And um, I, I just hope that it doesn't backfire, hope that it doesn't hurt him. And I hope that the strategy that he's choosing to utilize helps him in the long term. I really do, because the reason why I'm disappointed in Bernie Sanders right now in the way that he handled this is because I just can't see how it does help him. But I hope I'm proven wrong. And I hope he wins because no other Democrat will suffice. Their milquetoast neoliberal capitalist policies is not going to save the planet. It's not going to save the country. So Bernie's our last hope. And I just wish that he would start acting like it in times like this and call out his opponents who are only running because they're opportunists who want power, who don't actually care about helping normal Americans. And I'll leave that there. I just hope Bernie's right. But um, I don't agree with this strategy. So for whatever reason, Hulu will soon be premiering a four-part documentary about Hillary Clinton at Sundance simply titled Hillary. Because, of course, that's what they'd call it. Because, you know, everything is about Hillary Clinton. The world revolves around her. And I'm sure that she absolutely loves the attention that she will get because of this documentary. <laughs> but I digress. They're going to be premiering this documentary very soon. And in the lead up to the premiere, the Hollywood Reporter interviewed Hillary Clinton and they asked her about something that she said in this documentary that was incredibly negative about Bernie Sanders. And they basically asked her, does she believe that what she said then still holds up today? And not only did she confirm that she does believe all of those negative things she said about Bernie Sanders, but on top of that, she decided to imply that he's sexist and she called out his supporters as well. So interviewer Lacey Rose asked her in the documentary, you're brutally honest on Sanders. Quote, he was in Congress for years. He had one senator support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney. And I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. That assessment still hold? Yes, it does, Hillary Clinton answered. If he gets the nomination, will you endorse and campaign for him? Hillary responded, I'm not going to go there yet. We're still in a very vigorous primary season. I will say, however, that it's not only him, it's the culture around him. It's his leadership team. It's his prominent supporters. It's his online Bernie bros and their relentless attacks on lots of his competitors, particularly the women. And I really hope people are paying attention to that because it should be worrisome that he has permitted this culture. Not only permitted, he seems to really be very much supporting it. And I don't think we want to go down that road again where you campaign by insult and attack and maybe you try to get some distance from it but you either don't know what your campaign and supporters are doing or you're just giving them a wink and you want them to go after Kamala or after Elizabeth. I think that's a pattern that people should take into account when they make their decisions. She is such a sweet person. Love Hillary. <laughs> now before I address what she said here um as you can see, I'm not very mad about this. I don't care what Hillary Clinton thinks. But she also um, responded to last week's shiving of Bernie Sanders by his friend, Elizabeth Warren, quote-unquote friend. 
and she obviously sided with Elizabeth Warren, and she said that Bernie went, quote, after Elizabeth with a very personal attack on her. And she also claimed that, you know, this is really a pattern with Bernie Sanders. This is a history that he has with women and the way that he interacts with female candidates. I'm paraphrasing, but she said, you know, Bernie Sanders, he called me unqualified in 2016, and now we have this. I mean, put two and two together. Wink, wink. Seems like he's kind of sexist. Um, and on top of that, she also uh, supposedly said that she's been in contact with Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. She's been giving them advice, answering their questions, and really she's been talking to all of the 2020 Democratic Party primary contenders with the exception of one. Can you guess? It's Bernie Sanders. Um, so, listen, I don't care about this. I don't think anybody at this point really cares what Hillary Clinton has to say, but I will say that I'm happy that she chose to attack Bernie Sanders. Um, even though it's dirty, even though I think that this is probably hurtful for Bernie Sanders, the reason why I say this is because most Americans hate Hillary Clinton. So her giving Bernie Sanders this anti-endorsement, if you will, it's only going to help him. Because if she hates Bernie Sanders and Americans see that she hates Bernie Sanders, then they're probably going to like Bernie Sanders more. Not only be galvanized to support him and donate to him, but maybe support him and see him as a more sympathetic figure because Hillary Clinton is such a loathsome ghoul. I mean, think about this. Her critique is, nobody likes him. Now, by nobody, she means the elites in Washington, D.C. Well, guess what? We all hate D.C. We view all of you as the epicenter of corruption in America. You're all corrupt. You all take these legalized bribes. And the fact that nobody likes Bernie Sanders tells us that there's something unique and special about him. Maybe he's not corrupt like you and everyone else in D.C., Hillary Clinton. I'm responding to her as if she watches The Humanist Report, but I mean, maybe. So she um, also addressed all of Bernie Sanders' online supporters some of his prominent supporters online. And I can't help but think she's referring to people in indie media. Now, I'm assuming she doesn't know who I am, but if she is watching The Humanist Report, then understand Hillary Clinton. I absolutely hate you. And um, most Americans feel the same way that I do. No, not because you're a woman, but because you represent everything that is wrong in Washington, D.C. And it's not just you. It's all of your buddies, Pete Buttigieg. Joe Biden, Barack Obama, all of you are the reason why Donald Trump is president currently. Because this system, this ongoing, you know, push for neoliberalism, market-based policies, it hasn't been addressing our problems. And as a result, people became increasingly desperate and they became susceptible to the message of a demagogue like Donald Trump. Now imagine if somebody who's a more competent demagogue comes along. I worry about that. So, like, saving not just the country but the planet means we defeat people like Hillary Clinton because so long as they are in power, so long as they have an influence because she doesn't really have power but she's still influential, Donald Trump and people like him on the far right will continue to be able to obtain power easily. So, look, this bothered me not at all. Again, it, it hurts because I'm assuming... Bernie, after he worked his ass off to get her elected in 2016, you know, he views this as a slap in the face, but thinking of this in terms of like the long game, this is only going to help Bernie Sanders. I mean, think about how even though the establishment hates Tulsi Gabbard, when she called Tulsi Gabbard a Russian asset, most people saw through that, and I think that that helped Tulsi Gabbard. So this can only help Bernie Sanders similarly. Now, Bernie was asked about this, and he responded in the way that we all could have predicted he would have responded. 
He basically just let it all roll off of his shoulders. Take a look. Look, uh, right now, today, I am dealing with impeachment. Uh, we are very proud that the American College of Physicians has just come on board for Medicare for All. Thousands of doctors did an open letter to the New York Times uh, on Medicare for All. Uh, and right now, what my focus is on is, uh, outside of the impeachment trial, is doing everything I can to defeat the most dangerous president in modern American history, uh, that is Donald Trump. And that's really about all that. But Senator, I, I think Secretary Clinton said was about uh, your supporters and uh, criticizing them. Right, look, look, look. Secretary Clinton is entitled to, uh, you know, her point of view. Uh, my job today is to focus on the impeachment trial. Uh, my job today is to put together a team that can defeat the most dangerous president uh, in the history of the United States of America. Why do you think the secretary is still talking about 2016? That is a good question. Ask him. I can answer that because she felt entitled to the presidency. And even after she rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders, he still nearly beat her when he had no national name recognition. And also because she is a genuinely salty and terrible human being. Um, but look, Bernie Sanders... <laughs> On one hand, I feel so frustrated because I want him to punch back. I want him to defend himself. But I think that, and I said this on Twitter, we'd all be genuinely more happy if we let these types of attacks and smears just roll off of our shoulders in the way that Bernie Sanders does. Like for me, I let these types of things, when people say bad things about me, bother me. And if I didn't, like if I just brushed it off, I think I would probably be a lot more happier. And I'm sure the same is true for everyone else. So... In the long run, I think that Bernie Sanders is probably strategically correct to not really respond to this, but in the event he capitalized on this and attacked Hillary Clinton, I don't think it would hurt him. I think it would help him because people see through these attacks on Hillary, uh, that Hillary Clinton has been lobbying against him. Who doesn't at this point? I mean, she's been attacking everyone. She's been a genuinely toxic figure in the 2020 primary, contributing nothing but negativity, right? When we all want to beat Donald Trump after she lost to him. Right. So if Democrats are truly focused on defeating Donald Trump, how can they possibly view this as being helpful at all? It's not helpful. It's counterproductive. Right. So, I mean, nobody thinks that this is going to hurt Bernie Sanders. Nobody cares what Hillary Clinton says at this point, except for her followers who are sick of fans who will never leave her side. But those people are too far gone. Um, but I mean, the main thing about all of this is just the sheer hypocrisy from Hillary Clinton. Right. Because Back when she won the primary in 2016, she did absolutely nothing to try to reach out to Bernie Sanders supporters. There was this half-assed attempt to kind of adopt parts of his free college tuition plan. I, I think she maybe adopted two years or something. But I mean, she, she basically assumed that we would support her. And her tactic was to browbeat everyone who didn't want to fall in line, who was going to vote for Jill Stein. And now... Like the hypocrite that she is, she's indicated that, you know, maybe she's not going to be as loyal to the party as she wanted from us and expected from us. Isn't it amazing? Look, I said this at the beginning of the 2020 primary back in February of last year when Bernie Sanders announced his presidency or announced his campaign, soon to be presidency, hopefully. Um, I said that a lot of these centrists who were basically calling on people in 2016 to fall in line, they're either not going to vote for Bernie Sanders if he's the nominee or outright vote for Donald Trump. Because ideologically speaking, they're closer to Donald Trump than they are to Bernie Sanders. That's the case with Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, 
you're going to see a lot of hypocrisy, and it is going to be incredibly delicious to um, drink their salty tears after they have been berating us for years now to fall in line. And all of a sudden, once Bernie is surging before Iowa, it seems like they don't want to fall in line themselves and take their own advice. Now, here's the thing. What makes this even worse for Hillary Clinton is how documented it was that Bernie Sanders worked his ass off to get her elected. I'm going to play a clip from Rachel Maddow, and she's going to explain just how Bernie Sanders did everything he possibly could to get her elected. Take a look. There was this lingering question at the end of the Democratic primary as to whether or not Bernie Sanders really meant it when he endorsed Hillary Clinton, whether he really meant it when he said he would work his heart out all over the country to get her elected. Well, he's been working his heart out, it's true. He started campaigning for Clinton really in earnest, basically as a full-time gig a couple of weeks ago. He appears really to be flooring it for Hillary Clinton. Over the first five days Bernie Sanders spent on the campaign trail for Hillary Clinton, over five days, he did 14 events for her. Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, 14 events in five days. Yesterday and today and tonight, he's stumping for Hillary Clinton in Colorado. On Wednesday, he's going to Nevada for her. Tomorrow, though, he is spending all day and all night in Red State, Arizona. He did 14 events in five days. That is absolutely insane. He tried to do everything in his power to prop up the weakest candidate imaginable against Donald Trump. And she still lost. You had the most popular politician in America on the stump for you. You still lost. That's on you. That's something you, that's something that you've got to own. And on top of that, you know, she can't pretend that she didn't know how much of an effort Bernie Sanders made because she sent him this personal letter where she acknowledged the work that he did, you know, towards the end of the campaign. So, look, I am sick and tired of Hillary Clinton, and I go out of my way to avoid talking about her, but in instances like this where she's going after Bernard, and I am, you know, I think one of the leaders of the Brotherhood of the Bernard, I feel like I've got to defend his honor here. Bernie's not going to defend himself. He's going to, you know, sit on this, but as one of the, uh, toxic online Bernie bros, um, allow me to say that nobody respects Hillary Clinton. We absolutely hate Hillary Clinton. And um, if you disagree with me, Hillary Clinton, it's not because I'm sexist. It's because you're homophobic. And yes, I'm using that card. I've kept it in my back pocket for quite some time. And if you disagree with me, Hillary Clinton, it is because you are a raging homophobe. And she's actually quite literally a turf. Like she is a transphobe, right? So it's not that far off for me to use that card right now because, you know, trans people are my people. They're in my community. But nonetheless, I digress. That's <laughs> see how easy it is for me to get lost on a tangent. But at the end of the day, I mean, nobody takes Hillary Clinton seriously. You lost to a clown reality television show star take all of the millions of dollars that you have and just retire and go away because we are so sick and tired of hearing from you and hearing your negativity go away hillary so the ladies over at the view decided to weigh in on hillary clinton's latest round of attacks on bernie sanders and you are going to be stunned to learn that they sided with hillary clinton yeah Pretty big shocker. Well, let's find out what they had to say. Um, as usual, this was a dumpster fire of a segment. Hillary Clinton does not hold back her feelings on former rival Bernie Sanders in an upcoming documentary. <laughs> Hillary. Are we wearing the same jacket? You might be. <laughs> you might be. Sorry. Close. Sorry. Close. 
He was like, nobody likes him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He's a, he's a career politician. It's all just baloney. I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. And she's standing by these words. And, and you know, after this weekend of uh, really a lot of... What do you like? What do you call them? The faux pas? Faux pas. The, the, a lot the, of faux pas. A lot of faux pas. He was faux pieing everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you he know, really Bernie. Yes, I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. the Bernie bros were catching him. I mean, he, you know, so, you he know. had to apologize they several had to times. Yes. Yeah. It's so, thing. I mean. And by the way, we, I would like to take the view started this. Like, we were, we said, like, we're not feeling Bernie, and we got a lot of heat for it, and all of a sudden it feels like a lot of people in the media and voters are following, and this Bernie bro problem that she's talking about, mm -hmm. she was patient zero when yes, it comes to it. And I, again, the Bernie bros did a lot of damage to her, and I think going forward, you shouldn't underestimate their power and what they could do specifically to female candidates. And but you can, don't underestimate Hillary Clinton's power. She still has it. She oh, won yeah. by three million votes. I wouldn't. Absolutely. Yeah, people no. still like her. And you know what? After that Howard Stern interview, mm -hmm. we've seen the true Hillary. And I think she's fabulous. I think it's very important for people to note that Bernie registered to run for the Senate in 2024 as an independent, yet runs is running as a Democrat for the president. He is a Democrat by default, by default. And well, you really need to want understand that. You want him out. He just, they just need well, to but, understand that. But this has been my bitch with people running who are socialists. And I love socialists. But if you're a socialist... Find other people. Find your party, people in your party, to support you. Don't say you're a Democrat and then try to poop all over the Democratic folks. That's their, they're spouting what they believe. If you believe what you believe, then run as where you are. Let us see you. And if we like what you're saying, then people will, will vote for you. But you can't say you're one thing and then pretend to be something else and just but give I, a point. Yeah. I've so, I love you the know. socialists, too. I've slept yeah. with several. <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> I married a couple. <laughs> if this show were to ever be canceled, I think that the IQ of America collectively would be raised by at least 10 points. Like... This show is bad, and these are all individuals who are incredibly misinformed. The only person who I think actually knows about politics is Sonny Hostin, but her view is bad. It's elitist. It's, you know, establishment. So, I mean, this is just awful. It's nothing but conjecture, if you can even call it that. It's just garbage, right? Um, and, of course, I'm salty because they're going after my boy Bernie Sanders, but, um, you know, it's just... I'm tired of this. These are out of touch elite people who are all multimillionaires who will never have to worry about needing something, right? So no matter who is elected, a Democrat or a Republican, they will be taken care of because they have so much money that no matter what the government does or doesn't do, they're going to be cool. So that's why when I see them rich splay in American politics and, you know, be little Bernie Sanders and his supporters, it's infuriating. And at this point, like, it's what we have come to expect from The View. But we shouldn't, you know, get used to this because this really is morally reprehensible. So now addressing some of the specific things that they said, Meghan McCain said, The View started this. We said, like, we're not feeling Bernie. And we got a lot of heat for it. And all of a sudden, it feels like a lot of people in media and voters are following. So for her to say this, it suggests that she's actually talked to real people. Who have you talked to, Megan? Really? 
So, of course, the media is speaking out because they've hated Bernie Sanders. They only, you know, talked about him nicely and interviewed him in, you know, 2017 and 2018 when he wasn't running for office and wasn't really a threat to get power because that helped their ratings because he's very popular. But now they're all shitting on him. That's no surprise to anyone. But I mean, like, in terms of the normal people who are speaking out against Bernie, who, what peasants... Have you spoken to? Have you left your mansion to talk to normal people, Megan? Really? I mean, let's check her Twitter and see if she's engaged with anyone recently. Oh, would you look at that? It looks like she has uh, blocked me. <laughs> I mean, was it something I said, Megan? Was it me telling you that you are an out-of-touch elitist who is only there at the view because you are the beneficiary of nepotism, even though you are a talentless hack? Was it that, maybe? <laughs> Look... She is not engaging with normal Americans. It's just people in her own elite establishment bubbles, and that's it. Normal people aren't coming to Megan saying, oh, thank God you, you, know, you spoke out against Bernie Sanders. Now I can finally you know, espouse my true feelings. No, nobody's telling you that. I don't believe you. Now, on top of that, she said this Bernie bro problem she was talking about, she was patient zero. The Bernie bros did a lot of damage to her, and I think going forward, you shouldn't under underestimate their power and what they can do specifically to female candidates. Oh, okay, because we just, we don't like candidates specifically because they're female. It's not like we, you know, also don't like Joe Biden. It's not like we also don't like any other establishment shill. We just don't like the candidates because they're female. But she is right about one thing. We do have power now, not political power, but we do have influence. And what are we doing to female candidates? Well, um, if you ask AOC, Bernie bros are the ones who are helping her get elected. And now, since she's in office, she has become the voice of our generation. We are defending women against relentless smears, you know, oftentimes that come from The View, such as Meghan McCain's accusation that Ilhan Omar was anti-Semitic. We're defending women. Uh, we also are rallying around female candidates across the country helping them to get elected. I'm talking about Melanie Dorigo, Amanda Seabee, women across the country who are running for Congress. You see, the thing is, we criticize people based on policy and substance, not identity unlike you. And you claim to be this Republican who's against woke culture, but yet you're embracing that if it suits your political narrative. And you know, this just goes to show you that they have nothing. And it's so funny, like this is kind of related to this, so I wanna go off on a little bit of a tangent if you'll indulge me for a moment. I was browsing Reddit and um, I stumbled upon a thread in the Democrat subreddit where basically they call out a bunch of indie media uh, hosts, myself included. I was specifically cited because we're being a little bit too harsh on Pete Buttigieg. And one of the comments really stood out to me. One of the most interesting parts of 2019 was seeing how blatantly homophobic the far left is willing to get. And that's not the first time that I've been accused of being homophobic for criticizing Pete Buttigieg's policies. Now, for those of you who are longtime viewers, you know automatically why that's absolutely ridiculous. But for those of you who are new, I am a member of the LGBTQ community. I am gay. I've been gay married longer than Pete Buttigieg, but yet, because I criticized him based on the policies, well, because I am criticizing someone who is gay, by definition, that's homophobic and you shouldn't do it. No, that is bullshit. And the only people who make that type of argument are the individuals who don't have any other 
way to argue for their candidate or any policies that are better than ours. So when it comes to just debating the policy substance, 10 times out of 10, we win that discussion. So this is why you have to pander to people and claim that anyone who criticizes an individual from a marginalized community is automatically bigoted. Well, you have to do that because you have nothing else. Now getting to the rest of this segment here. So Joy Behar amazingly said after the Howard Stern interview, we've seen the true Hillary. And she's fabulous. Joy. Delete yourself. I don't know what else to say about that. Like, everyone was irritated by that interview because she came across as a bitter, salty person who can't get over the fact that she lost to the biggest clown in America. But you think that she came across as fabulous? That says a lot about you, Joy. Now, Sonny Hostin said, I think that it's important for people to note that Bernie registered to run for the Senate in 2024 as an independent, yet is running for the president as a Democrat. He is Democrat by default. I don't know what it is about this argument, but people in media think that it's persuasive, but nobody cares. We have a two-party duopoly, and the only reason why individuals such as myself are registered as Democrats is because we have to be, because I live in a closed primary state right? We have to support these two parties if we want to elect someone who's going to get power because we don't have proportional representation. So you're not convincing anyone. In fact, Democrats and Republicans are less popular than the independent label. More people identify as independent now. So you're not convincing anyone. People aren't Democratic Party loyalists like you are contrary to popular belief, right? Just being not Republican isn't enough for most people. So when you say this, it is absolutely meaningless and it resonates with basically no one. Now, Whoopi chimed in and said, look, if you're a socialist, find other people, people in your party to support you. Don't say you're a Democrat and then try to poop all over the Democratic folks. Now, I don't know why whenever Whoopi Goldberg talks about politics, she has to invoke uh, either poop or pee when talking about progressives, but it's incredibly weird. Um, she, she must have some sort of like scat kink or whatever, but that's besides the point. She's saying this now, but I guarantee you, um, if Joe Biden is the nominee, she's going to be one of the loudest people crying for all of us to fall in line and support the candidate that uh, we didn't support in the primary. I guarantee it. And look, learn about politics will be educate yourself because we live in a two-party system not because we want only two parties but because the institutions create what is known as Duverger's law it's a majoritarian winner-take-all system where there's basically two parties and uh that's it any third party is marginalized they are institutionally disadvantaged and yes we should work to change that we need ranked choice voting we need proportional representation we need a district magnitude of at least three uh, but she's saying this, oh, well, you know, get out of my party. I don't want you here. Be careful what you wish for, because if you tell that to enough people, they will listen to you and they will stay home and not vote if the Democrat is the nominee. And then you're going to whine about Trump getting reelected after you told them to fuck off, fuck out of your party. Well, guess what? How about this? We're going to take over the Democratic Party, whether you like it or not. And all of you elitists can leave the Democratic Party, because when you're rich, when you are a multimillionaire, you don't need a political party. You do not need a party to represent your interests in government because let me remind you, if you have tens of millions of dollars, there is not a single thing that the government can do that will substantially change your life. Yes, you may benefit from Donald Trump's tax cuts, but guess what? That isn't as substantial of an impact on your life as having a Bernie Sanders president would be on our lives, 
right? So you don't need a political party. So why don't you get the fuck out of the Democratic Party, right? Because nobody cares about the Democratic Party. We're not loyal to the Democratic Party. We care about policies and we do not worship politicians and play team politics, unlike hacks like you who have nothing else because you don't care about policy. And it's probably because you don't know jack shit about policy. So I mean, I don't even know why I take the time to focus on the view. But I feel as if I have to call it out because at this point, like when you look at Fox News, it's a clown show. A lot of Americans, well-intentioned liberals, don't take Fox News seriously. However, The View is a show that Americans do take seriously. It has a lot of influence. They get millions of viewers every single day. So I feel the need to speak out when they spread this type of harmful toxicity, right? Especially when Donald Trump is president. So if I can convert like even just one viewer of The View, I feel like this segment will be worthwhile. But, um, you know, that's wishful thinking because if you watch this show religiously, then um, I don't know if you're even gettable at this point with how toxic that show has become. They've brainwashed a lot of people who watch it um, and they've been brainwashed by individuals who don't really know about policy or politics and individuals who are just there because they have, uh, you know, famous parents like John McCain. My father. Uh, that's her father. father. Uh, we have Abby Huntsman who, you know, is also the daughter of a politician. It's just, I mean... They represent everything wrong with American politics, and they're just, they're the worst. <laughs> they're the worst, and I genuinely hope that The View gets canceled. <laughs> I don't care. I know the first comment is going to be, Mike is joining in on cancel culture. I don't care. I genuinely would like celebrate if the show got canceled. I'm sure it would be replaced by something even worse, but I don't care. Cancel them. They suck. Um, they're just, they're bad for the country. Tulsi Gabbard, being the subject of Hillary Clinton's smears before, was asked about Hillary Clinton's attack on Bernie Sanders, and her response was basically perfect because she describes this as exactly what it is. This is basically high school drama being perpetuated by someone who we're all supposed to respect, who is, you know, one of the ideological leaders of the Democratic Party. But um, here's what she said about it. This is just... This is great. Look, it's time to grow up. You know, this isn't high school. Uh, we're talking about real challenges that our country needs to address and the need for real leadership to focus on them, not on what's going on in Washington and the schoolyard clicks or whatever else it may be. There are real issues that people are struggling with and they're wondering why are our leaders not working for us? This is why I'm running for president to change that because Washington is so disconnected from the reality of, of what people are dealing with every day. There, there are people dying because of this opioid epidemic every day. This is what our leaders should be focusing on, among many other issues. That was absolutely amazing. And that's like the way that you should respond to Hillary Clinton. Like the petulant child that she is. It's time to grow up. This isn't high school. Nobody cares about your cliques in Washington, D.C. And that Bernie Sanders wasn't part of the club. Nobody gives a damn about that. What we care about and the reason why you're in D.C. is not to make friends with the other politicians. It is to codify policies into law and um, help the American people. But I mean, it just goes to show you that all of these politicians are so self-serving and they don't care about the American people. So look, 
I've had my criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard, and I still have very, very strong policy and, uh, you know, strategy and even ideological disagreements with Tulsi Gabbard, but I believe in giving credit where it's due. This is great, and lately she's kind of been on a roll after going down in my book, you know, based on policy decisions that she's made and, you know, appearing on Breitbart and whatnot. She's slowly but surely rising again, in my view, um, and this comes after she uh, basically came out in favor of legalizing all drugs, which is something that I am totally on board with. So as Tom Angel of Forbes reports, Representative Tulsi Gabbard is calling for the U.S. to legalize currently illicit drugs. Quote, if we take that step to legalize and regulate, then we're no longer treating people who are struggling with substance addiction and abuse as criminals and instead getting them the help that they need, the 2020 presidential candidate said at a campaign stop in Merrimack, New Hampshire on Friday. She was responding to a voter who asked whether her plan to end the war on drugs centered on more harm reduction and treatment or if it involved moving to legalize and regulate narcotics so that you're no longer seeing tainted drugs on the street and involvement in the black market. The congresswoman replied that her answer was, all of the above. Quote, the costs and the consequence to this failed war on drugs is so vast and far-reaching, socially and fiscally, that if we take these necessary steps, we'll be able to solve a lot of other problems that we're dealing with in this country, she said. So, I think that this matters. Like, she's not my candidate. Um, I have Bernie Sanders as my number one, two, three, four, and so on. But I think that, you know, making these types of um, policy decisions, choosing to advocate for things like this, it does shift the Overton window to the left, which is what I really want to see happen. It's why at the beginning of this primary, I donated to Tulsi Gabbard. I donated to Andrew Yang. I donated to Elizabeth Warren. Like I donated to all of the progressives because I wanted to make sure that we had the furthest left conversation, you know, in this primary as we possibly can, uh, could have had. And now, you know, it's clear that, uh, centrists once again have dominated the conversation in spite of that effort. Um, so look, credit where it's due to Tulsi Gabbard. Um, she hasn't fully won me back yet, but she gets a high five for as of late making decisions that I actually applaud her for. Defending Bernie Sanders, I think that even though ideologically her and Bernie Sanders are a lot different than I initially thought, I think that for him to come out and defend her against Hillary Clinton and for her to do, do the same, there is, you know, th there are benefits in having a political alliance, if anything else, right? Just because they're both anti-establishment, um, as is Andrew Yang, and even though there are really substantive policy disagreements that are deal breakers for me, I think that forming this type of political alliance with individuals who, you know, are also against the establishment, I think that it can be worthwhile in the long run. So, um, yeah, good job, Tulsi. Pete Buttigieg is having a moment. Um, what kind of moment, you ask? <laughs> He's having a, uh... Jeb Bush kind of moment, because he had his please clap moment, and oh, it's so good. I'm going to look to you to spread that sense of hope to those that you know. Yes. Come on. <laughs> I'm bad, but I mean, I can't help myself. Nothing screams desperation like begging a crowd to respond in a way that they don't actually feel. I mean, if you are in a room full of people and they don't applaud you, it's because they don't believe that what you said was worthy of applause. 
And then, you know, he uh, couldn't take it, though. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that laugh was, but it was really weird. Um, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this. Because, I mean, Pete Buttigieg in the media, he is often propped up as the next Obama, and the establishment loves him. The elite pundit class absolutely can't get enough of him. But this individual is just as out of touch as any other politician in D.C. currently. He may not be in Washington, D.C. He may be the mayor of South Bend, but he's just as out of touch, if not more, than the average politician. And um, I think that he deserves to be covered, even when he does cringeworthy things as well, even if for the most part he's been going down in the polls. Now, um, just for uh, comparison's sake, this was Jeb Bush's please clap moments back in 2015 or 2016. Of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. You can see in that clip that there was like a genuine feeling of sadness in uh, Jeb Bush's voice there. You could just see he was deflated because this idiot reality television host just decides to jump in when he was pulling in first and is just dominating the entire Republican primary and he just, he can't take it anymore. He's to the point where, please clap. And now we have uh, Pete Buttigieg having his own please clap moment. And I don't know if that was the same venue. Like I saw people on Twitter point out that it was the same exact venue. Um, so maybe that venue is cursed. I don't know. I, I can't confirm, by the way, that that is the case. Um, but if it is the same venue, I mean, that would make this that much better. So, I mean, I've got nothing else. I just wanted to talk about this because I love uh, dunking on Pete Buttigieg because I think he's a ghoul. And it doesn't matter to me that he is a millennial. He absolutely does not represent our generation. This person is a self-serving politician who is uh, kind of a sociopath, in my opinion. But um, that's a different story for a different day. Uh, I can't wait to not hear from him again. But I think that, you know, the media is probably going to shove him down our throats every four to eight years or whenever there is a Senate race. We're going to have to deal with him for a while. And he's going to be the next Hillary Clinton. I'm calling it now. The mainstream media wants you to think that Bernie Sanders is the most divisive and toxic candidate, but it seems like one of their favorites, Joe Biden, just decided to go explicitly negative. And he released this campaign ad where he accuses Bernie Sanders of basically being a gigantic liar. As Democrats, we can't launch dishonest attacks against fellow Democrats. We have to beat Donald Trump. Now Bernie's campaign has unleashed a barrage of negative attacks on Joe Biden. They've even accused Joe Biden of supporting Paul Ryan's cuts to Social Security. Bernie's campaign is not telling the truth. Joe Biden has repeatedly voted to save Social Security. He and President Obama beat back Republican attempts to privatize it. And in 2012, Joe Biden even said he didn't support those cuts to Paul Ryan. We will be no part of a voucher program or the privatization of Social Security. Biden's plan protects Social Security and will increase benefits. Bernie's negative attacks won't change the truth. Joe Biden is still the strongest Democrat to beat Donald Trump. Wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Proved over and over again. So that was absolutely pathetic. And Joe Biden is saying that Bernie Sanders team is lying and Bernie himself is lying. And what did they do? Play clips and share clips of Joe Biden himself saying that he wants to cut Social Security.
So, I mean, it's really Joe Biden who is the liar. And to accuse Bernie Sanders' team of lying by sharing videos of you and your own words, this is the Democratic equivalent of alternative facts. You are just lying, living in your own reality. Which wouldn't surprise me because Joe Biden cognitively has been on the decline for quite some time. Lana, I got hairy legs that turn that 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 turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. Now he says here, as Democrats, we can't launch dishonest attacks against fellow Democrats. Question: Will that include? lying and falsely accusing individuals like Bernie Sanders of doctoring videos of you? Because you haven't apologized for that. Bernie apologized to you when he shouldn't have after one of his surrogates called you corrupt, but we're all still waiting on an apology from, from Joe Biden after he said that Bernie's team doctored a video, which is an outrageous claim to make but nothing. Now, in that video, notice how he moves the goalpost. What Bernie Sanders' team did was share videos of Joe Biden straight from the horse's mouth saying, I want to cut Social Security, but what does he say in that? Oh, well, I told Paul Ryan at that debate that uh, I'm against privatization. Right, but we're not talking about privatization. Nobody's accusing you of wanting to privatize Social Security. What we're saying is you want to cut Social Security, and you have a history of saying and trying to do that. Like, does anyone remember the grand bargain where Obama and Joe Biden tried to team up with Republicans? Thankfully, that fell through, but one of the things on the chopping block was Social Security. It was Bernie Sanders who was calling on Obama's administration to stop that. And second of all, even if, let's say, you explicitly in that debate against Paul Ryan uh, said, you know what, we're not going to cut Social Security. You weren't even talking about privatization. When you're running for office, you say things to convince people to support you. Uh, the last two presidents, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, both ran on the promise that they wouldn't cut Social Security, but yet... They both wanted to do that. Obama tried it and failed, thankfully. And Donald Trump has had it on his uh, budget requests for how many years now? And he just signaled again that he'd be open to cutting Social Security and entitlements if he's reelected. I mean, I don't care what you say on the campaign trail. I care what you do when you are in power. So this is just outrageous, the fact that he would accuse Bernie Sanders of being a liar when he has lied repeatedly throughout the course of this campaign about his own record. It's just, it's insane. He's been caught in so many lies with regard to, you know, his support for the Iraq war when it comes to the crime bill. And yet he still is accusing Bernie Sanders of being a liar. I mean, the audacity, the gall of this person. So Bernie Sanders, thankfully actually hit back and released an ad yet again of Joe Biden saying himself, I want to cut Social Security. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it the third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Well, we've got some bad news for them. We are not going to cut Social Security. We're going to expand benefits. That was absolutely great. It was short but sweet. And if I were Bernie Sanders, I would be running that ad everywhere in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, because this needs to be seen. Joe Biden is not reliable. In fact, he's a threat to Social Security and people need to know that. And to the chagrin of Joe Biden, we have this thing, I don't know if he's heard of it, called the internet, where we can go back decades ago and see specifically what you said, find videos of you saying things that you're now saying that you never said. 
finding you supporting policies that uh, you claimed to never have supported. See, in the age of the internet, you'd think that politicians wouldn't be as brazen about lying about their records, but it hasn't changed anything. And Joe Biden's not alone. Hillary Clinton did the same thing in 2016, but I mean, it's just, it's so pathetic. Now, because what Joe Biden released was in fact an attack ad, a reporter asked him uh, why attack Bernie Sanders, and his response, it was... Um, I guess you could describe it as interesting, if anything. Why attack Sanders? Why, 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 what the fuck was that? The man's brain is melting out of his ears. He's becoming unhinged. And like, I think that he believes that this will make him appear more likable. But the perspective is that we all see you on TV. You struggle to collect your thoughts. Um, you are having a difficult time articulating, you know, coherent sentences, your brain is melting. This doesn't prove otherwise, Joe. This isn't helping your case. Now, he was also on MSNBC, and he was interviewed by Morning Joe, and he gave, uh, I guess you could say, a better answer, but nonetheless, he still lied. I want to pull hey, you Willie. back into the campaign just a little bit and talk about Bernie Sanders' criticism sure. of you on that question of Social Security because, as you pointed out, he did apologize to you for the op-ed written by a surrogate calling you corrupt. Uh, they also put out that clip that misrepresented your position when talking about Paul Ryan. Clearly, you were mocking Paul Ryan and being facetious. But just last night, I want to put up a tweet from Bernie Sanders. He wrote this to you. Let's be honest, Joe. One of us fought for decades to cut Social Security. One of us didn't. But don't take it from me, take it from you. They include there a video clip, a statement you made on the Senate floor in 1995 where you were talking about freezing federal spending, including Social Security. So it's not just surrogates, and he can complain, but it's coming from the principal himself. They think they have an issue with you on Social Security. So once and for all, will you cut Social Security benefits if you become president? No, 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 no. And we weren't talking about cutting them either then. That was trying to figure out how we got through a debacle where the whole government didn't shut down. And so, look, it's, it's uh, um, <laughs> I find it amazing that we go back and look at statements, many of them, most of them taken out of context of 10, 20, 30, 35 years ago. It's like my going back and pointing out how, how Bernie voted against the Brady Bill five times while I was trying to get a passenger to the House or how he voted to you know, uh, protect gun manufacturers is the only group in America you can't sue. I mean, he, he's made up for that. He, he's indicated that was passed. Um, but I, I, you know, if you want to talk about things that are really different, um, you know, my support for Social Security has been solid my entire career. I did join with a lot of other Democrats uh, to uh, make sure we fixed Social Security, quote unquote, made it solvent during the Reagan years. Um, but uh, look, it's all about making sure we have, you know, we have we have one real obligation as to the very, as Hubert Humphrey said, the, the very the youngest among us and the oldest among us. That's real. And I've never walked away from that. Did you think these attacks from the Sanders campaign are dishonest? 
What I don't want to do is start to characterize them. I, I accept the apology and I hope we'll argue in the facts. It's funny how he says he wants to argue based on the facts, but he keeps lying. In that interview, he was lying through his teeth. And it's unbelievable. We have him on tape. Bernie created an ad where he uses your words and he still insists that he never said he wanted to cut Social Security. What? That is outrageous. And every single pundit in America should be calling him out because we have him on video, not doctored. It's been shared more than a million times where Joe Biden says very clearly, I tried to cut Social Security. And he's saying, no, that never happened. His defense, uh, that was them trying to figure out how we uh, got through a debacle where the whole government didn't shut down. Right. By cutting Social Security. That's what you wanted to do. You proposed cuts to Social Security to keep the government open. So how does not, that not qualify as you saying that you want to cut Social Security? I mean, it's unbelievable. This individual is becoming Trumpier and Trumpier as the primary goes on. Like, if he's the nominee, God forbid, we're going to choose between Orange Trump and White Trump. Like, that's the choice because this individual is a liar. He is lying through his teeth while he ironically accuses Bernie Sanders of lying, it's just outrageous to me. It is outrageous. And the fact that this isn't on the headline of every single newspaper, the New York Times, the Washington Post, just calling out his brazen lie, it goes to show you that the media does have a horse in this race and they're siding with Joe Biden. And they made that pretty explicit because a Bloomberg reporter named Jennifer Epstein decided to dig through old videos of Bernie Sanders so she could basically get him. And it's funny because when we talk about politicians saying they want to cut social security we oftentimes point out their code words that they use to inadvertently suggest cuts meaning you know if they say i want to fix it or i want adjustments so a reporter from bloomberg tried to find a video of bernie sanders saying that he wants to adjust social security and just the mere fact that they did this research shows you that they're trying to run interference for Joe Biden. But Epstein tweeted out, new Bernie Sanders spoke in 1996 about the future need for adjustments to Social Security, a term that Sanders campaign slash allied Social Security group had called a euphemism for cuts when it was used by Biden. Now, we'll get to the article because they don't have a case. But the reason why we call out when politicians use words like adjust is because they're trying to hide their agenda. If Bernie Sanders says we need to make adjustments to Social Security and then he explains what he means by that, I don't have a problem with that. Like, do you not understand why we cite use of doublespeak? Like, Joe Biden is vague when he talks about Social Security. Look, we need to make some adjustments to it. Well, what does that mean? He never says. And like Republicans, we can assume, also based on his history, that he wants to cut Social Security. It's the same way as when politicians say that we need to increase access to health care. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a code word for, I don't support Medicare for all. I'm in favor of just, you know, tweaking around the edges. So, in this own article <laughs> that this reporter uh, put out, it explains how Bernie Sanders does say what he means by adjustments. Quote, in an October 1996 Burlington Free Press guide to that year's election, Sanders' view on the issue was again described with the A-word. Quote, Sanders says Social Security is projected to be solvent through 2020, but Congress will need to adjust revenues and benefits to keep it financially sound, the paper said. 
Sanders' record shows he supported increasing funding for Social Security and opposed benefit cuts throughout his political career. In 1995, he warned that the balanced budget amendment, which Biden supported, would lead to, quote, the destruction of the Social Security system as we know it. He also introduced and sponsored legislation throughout the 1990s to protect and increase American Social Security checks. But wait, he still used the word adjustments and you all said that that's a no-no word so got him unreal no the word is problematic when that's all we get when that is your policy proposal for social security when you just say you want to adjust it we don't know what that means but when you say you want to adjust it but then you explicitly say i want to lift the cap on social security it's not problematic. But you see, this isn't about trying to get Bernie Sanders. It's an attempt to downplay the significance of the word adjust in order to cover for Joe Biden. So that way, when he says that we should adjust Social Security, you know, you don't think that it's as nefarious. And I'm assuming that the author didn't really expect people to read this entire article and just wanted you to look at the headline. So that way you would think, oh, well, Bernie must mean that he wants to cut Social Security as well. I mean, the whole point of this is to defend Joe Biden. So the entire media establishment in America has chosen a side. When someone is brazenly lying like Joe Biden, they're siding with Joe Biden. We are using Joe Biden's own words against him. And they're siding with Joe Biden, sweeping that all under the rug, not talking about his history of wanting to cut Social Security. This is unbelievable and i want you all to remember this because when the media questions why there's no trust in them it's instances like this because you are giving joe biden a pass and there are some reporters from bloomberg who are actively trying to get bernie sanders when we're trying to show you that joe biden has a history of advocating for cuts to social security so when he says we need to fix it or adjust it that should be a red flag it's not a red flag if Bernie says it and then says how he wants to adjust it. But the fact that Joe Biden doesn't say how he wants to adjust it in and of itself, that's a problem. Now, in that MSNBC clip that I showed you, he did say, look, I want to protect Social Security. I don't I don't support cutting it. But here's the thing. Again, when we have the last two presidents, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, run on protecting Social Security, but then their actions indicate otherwise... I don't trust you. I'm sorry. And if Joe Biden is willing to brazenly lie and call Bernie Sanders a liar, then why should we believe that you actually wouldn't want to cut Social Security? You're already saying that you want to work with Republicans. You keep saying nice things about Republicans. So why should we believe you, Joe Biden? The answer is we should not. And the media should be ashamed of themselves for actually giving him a pass when this should sink his campaign. So Bernie Sanders' surge continues. He is leading in Wisconsin. He's closing the gap in Nevada. This is just amazing. Like, I'm looking at the numbers come in, and more and more each day, it dawns on me that we could literally win this and get a Bernie Sanders presidency. How amazing is that? So I want to talk about his numbers because... I think that after all of the bad news that we've been bombarded with, all of the smears and attacks, you have to understand that regardless, the hard work that you're doing, the time you're putting in canvassing and phone banking for Bernie Sanders, guess what? It's paying off. Because guess who just surged to first place nationally, surpassing Joe Biden, according to a CNN poll? Bernard Sanders. And their headline actually says 
that he has surged to first place, believe it or not. And if you look towards the column on the left here of this uh, graph, Bernie now leads with 27%, which is a seven-point increase since December, which is the last time that CNN conducted this poll. Joe Biden is now in second with 24%, dropping by two points since December. Warren is now in a distant third place, also dropping two points since December. And Pete Buttigieg is now at 11%, although he did rise three points overall, basically, you know, competing for third place with Elizabeth Warren. Now, that's not the only good poll that I want to share with you, but before I talk about the next poll, I just have to say, one of our most important arguments, and I think a real way that we can actually flip Biden supporters to Bernie Sanders, is by emphasizing Bernie Sanders' electability. And we just got a new poll from SurveyUSA that proves us right. According to this poll, as Newsweek reports, Bernie Sanders now leads Donald Trump out of all 2020 candidates by the widest margin. And I want to go to this tweet here because I think it lays out the data really nicely. So as you can see, Bernie Sanders beats Trump by nine points overall, and Biden still beats Trump, albeit by seven points. Now, it also shows that Bloomberg, Buttigieg, and Warren beat Trump by seven, three, and three points respectively. And additionally, it shows that Andrew Yang beats Trump by two points, while Tom Steyer ties with Trump, and both Klobuchar and Gabbard lose to Donald Trump with two and five points respectively. So when it comes to electability, now is the time when we make our case for Bernie's electability loudly, because we now have a crucial piece of evidence, a recent poll that shows he does the best against Donald Trump. Now, what people need to realize is that we all have to assume Trump will run the dirtiest campaign imaginable, and he's going to eat into the lead that all of the Democrats have. So what we have to do is give ourselves the biggest possible cushion and assume that maybe Trump will knock a Democrat down by four points, right? So it makes sense to go with the person with the widest lead against Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and not just because the numbers say this. Also, substantively, you can really argue the case that Bernie has what it takes to turn out a wide set of voters that don't normally show up. He has the youth vote on lock. How did Barack Obama win in 2008? He got young people and disaffected voters out. That's the ticket. That's how you beat Donald Trump. Joe Biden isn't going to energize anyone. So if you want to win, you need someone who can energize the base. That is the crux of Bernie's electability argument, I think, in addition to these polls. So do not forget to cite this poll when you are making that case. Now, on top of that, what I think arguably matters the most is how Bernie Sanders is doing in early states. And as this tweet from the Morning Consult points out, Biden is technically still leading overall in early states at 26%, even though he is down a point. Now, Bernie Sanders, thankfully, is catching up overall with 23% to Joe Biden's 26%. He gained four points overall. Now, here's why I think we can win over some of Joe Biden's supporters, especially using that electability argument. So a plurality of Joe Biden supporters at 28% would go to Bernie Sanders because he is their second choice. And 37% of Warren supporters also have Bernie as their second choice. So we have a real opportunity to win over some of Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren's supporters by stressing electability. Because as they fall in the polls, this data by the Morning Consult indicates that it's Bernie Sanders who's going to benefit from that.
And this is also really important considering, you know, caucus states, right? Because if you have a candidate that doesn't meet that 15% threshold, then you have to caucus for someone else. So people then go to their second choice. Bernie is going to benefit from two major candidates, two of the other frontrunners, uh, if they don't reach that threshold. Now, I assume that in most cases, uh, Joe Biden, probably Elizabeth Warren, will meet that threshold. Pete Buttigieg, you know, it's up in the air. But we're looking really good, although I will say that there is area for opportunity. And according to Real Clear Politics polling averages, when you look at Iowa, Biden currently is leading overall by about 3.7 points. Now, I don't want you to get too, you know, down and feel discouraged because of this. Remember that in 2016, Bernie Sanders overperformed the polls by about four points. So this doesn't mean that he's going to lose. It just means that we can win, but we want the largest possible margin of victory ever so we can improve our odds you know going into other primary states now in new hampshire joe biden and bernie sanders are virtually tied with bernie having a slight lead over joe biden by about a point and in nevada we have a really strong opportunity here since biden and elizabeth warren are consistently dropping but bernie sanders is holding pretty steady remember that nevada is also a caucus state now in south carolina well we'll just say that um we need the momentum, um, all the momentum that we can get that we will hopefully um, have if Bernie Sanders can win Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, I think that's really the only way that we can win South Carolina or at least not get beaten in South Carolina, as was the case last time. So I do want to stress that Bernie doesn't have Iowa and New Hampshire on lock. You have to put in the work. If you have time this weekend, please make some calls for Bernie Sanders. But I want you to feel optimistic, cautiously so, but encouraged because Bernie wouldn't be in this position, especially considering all of the establishment attacks and media smears, had it not been for you. Not only is the coalition from 2016 back, but he has expanded his voter base. And this is something that you did. If you're watching this video, any way that you have engaged, anything that you have done to contribute, even if it's just a dollar, you have done this. So I really want you to not let that fact be lost on you. You and all of us have contributed in some way to Bernie Sanders' strong numbers. And we have a real chance of electing a Bernie Sanders president. And as I talk about this, I get chills. Like, it's, it's almost unbelievable. And after I was so devastated after 2016, I don't want to get my hopes up. So when I say be optimistic, be cautiously optimistic because you never know what types of curveballs are going to be thrown our way. But understand, we have done so much and win or lose, I think that we can all rest assured knowing that we tried everything we can to win and be victorious. We're certainly in a better position in 2020 than we were in 2016. And holy shit, guys. We might win this thing. Now that Bernie Sanders is surging as we head into the first 2020 primaries, I mean, the mainstream media, the elite class, they're trying everything to stop Bernie Sanders' momentum. They're attacking him relentlessly in the media. You have ghouls like Hillary Clinton coming out of hiding to attack him. And they're even resorting to attacking Bernie Sanders supporters by uh, resurrecting the Bernie bro myth which is no longer even factually applicable to Bernie Sanders' campaign based on current demographics. Nonetheless, that is the new tactic that they're trying to use to attack Bernie Sanders, that there's this cult of personality, and around him are all of these mostly white males who are attacking mostly uh, women of color. 
Now, I've debunked this myth numerous times. I think that the Bernie Bro myth was dead as early as 2017 when data showed that the Bernie Bro myth isn't actually a realistic thing. Nonetheless, that hasn't stopped them from trying to use it again. So I've got two articles that I want to share with you. The first comes from NBC News with an article titled, Trump's MAGA supporters and Twitter Bernie Bros have this ugly tactic in common. Bernie Twitter operates under the self-righteous guise of being the true progressives of the internet, but their harassing tactics are anything but progressive. And what I love is that this person, like, pretends to be this authority on what is and isn't progressive, but this article was written by Kurt Bardella, who is a former writer for Breitbart. Definitely an authority on progressive politics in the United States. And look, this article, as well as the other one I'm going to talk about, basically boils down to, look, I said something stupid about Bernie Sanders that people didn't like, and they were mean to me online. That's literally all that this is about. But the second article comes from the Daily Beast by Scott Bixby, and it's titled, Bernie Bros are loud, proud, and toxic to Sanders' campaign. The Vermont Independent is grappling with a toxic wedge of fandom that threatens to distract from his campaign and turn off potential supporters. So this one is approaching this in a more intelligent way, trying to, I guess, reason with us, if you will, and suggest, look, I get it, you're all angry, you're bros, but it's actually hurting Bernie Sanders. So the first one with uh, Bardella is more of an attack on us directly, and the second one is, you know, the writer from the Daily Beast just trying to reason with us and get us to not be so passionate about Bernie Sanders because it's only hurting our candidate. Both of them deeply flawed and disingenuous articles. Nonetheless, let's uh, indulge them for a moment here. So the first one we'll look at is the NBC News article with the former Breitbart employee. And by the way, let me just say that in 2024, with the rate that all of these mainstream outlets are hiring former Republican and never Trump figures, I wouldn't be surprised to see articles written by Dave Rubin in NBC News or ABC, because anyone who is a former Republican, they get a bigger say on the Democratic Party primary and progressive politics than actual progressives. Like, it's amazing that we even see individuals like Anna Kasparian and Crystal Ball on CNN ever, with how little representation we have in media. Nonetheless, uh, let's get to that first article. Quote, time and again, we see how backlash on social media is used to bully people into submission and silence criticism. For writers and commentators like me, sometimes we have to weigh whether or not it's even worth writing something that could incur the wrath of a political figure's devout following. The backlash is important because it gives us insights into the nature of the political debate on social media, who has power, and how that power is being wielded. And it's also important to talk about the voices who may be keeping silent and why. The attacks against Warren come from the same corners of social media that disparage Democrats like myself as being puppets, centrist, anti-Semitic, and ageist for having the audacity to question or scrutinize their chosen leader. People of color and women who dare to disagree with Sanders' political assertions have often borne the brunt of this abuse. This hyper-vocal faction of Sanders supporters, colloquially known as Bernie Bros., never went away after the 2016 presidential election. In my personal experience, these bros are almost overwhelmingly white men, and they share, like Trump's ardent supporters, a desire to, quote, put me in my place. Disturbingly, there are times where you really can't distinguish between the tone and tactics of Trump's MAGA nation and Sanders' bros. We don't want to give political cyberbullies undue attention. Indeed, racism and sexism from the cult of Trump is pretty much expected at this point. After all, they are taking cues from their leaders. 
leader. But in the case of Sanders supporters and anyone claiming to be a quote progressive, this type of toxicity should not be tolerated. Bernie Twitter operates under the self-righteous guise of being the true progressives of the internet. This smugness distinguishes their tweets, but there's nothing progressive about attacking members of your own party who may have reservations about the presidential candidate you're supporting. There's also nothing progressive about having so little tolerance for different opinions that even the hint of opposition is enough to incite a virtual mob as I and even John Legend have discovered firsthand. Yes, because I am sure that John Legend is just so distraught with his millions upon millions of dollars in his mansion. Um, look, this is a joke. What this argument basically boils down to is I said things about Bernie Sanders that people took issue with and uh, people were mean to me on Twitter. Okay, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I have a YouTube show. I've criticized Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, Marianne Williamson, and I've also gotten backlash, but that's just part of politics. If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. I mean, what are you doing? And he says that, you know, Bernie supporters are basically harassing people. But first and foremost, I think that you are embellishing. And second of all, even if there were a couple of outliers who were harassing you, do you really think that it's appropriate to generalize about the totality of Bernie Sanders' base of support? Of course not. That's irrational. And I love how he bemoans the use of our identity politics when we call individuals anti-Semitic, probably half seriously and facetiously, and ageist. But I mean, you guys do that all the time. In this very article, you're saying, oh, well, Bernie's white bros are basically going after women of color. So, I mean, you just don't like when we give you a taste of your own medicine, and I'm sorry, the arguments that you all use in mainstream media collectively against Bernie Sanders, it's all dog shit. It comes from the views of people who are elitist, who are comfortable, who have millions upon millions of dollars, who don't actually want to change the status quo. So, what you view as basically harassment, what it actually is, is probably people who are just passionate telling you, no, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. That's the way that political Twitter as a whole operates. And I'll get to why this individual isn't even correct that Bernie supporters are the most hostile online. But before we do that, I want to move on to the next article. This one is from the Daily Beast. Senator Bernie Sanders has called their behavior, quote, disgusting. Would-be supporters of the Vermont Independent have cited them as the reason they can't endorse him. His campaign has even privately apologized to rivals for online pylons that crossed the line into open harassment. And still, the Bernie bro army marches on. The intensity of the largely social media driven attacks by Sanders fans has risen sharply in recent weeks as polling in early states has tightened among the top tier of Democratic candidates and Justice Sanders himself has pointedly avoided engaging with even the most direct attacks on his candidacy. When Senator Elizabeth Warren accused Sanders of telling her in a private meeting that he didn't believe that a woman could defeat Donald Trump in 2020, the Massachusetts Senator's Twitter feed was deluged with a plague of snake emojis. Oh my god. Even as Sanders called for a de-escalation in hostilities after former presidential nominee Hillary Clinton doubled down on comments in an upcoming documentary that, quote, nobody in Congress likes Sanders, the number of tweets calling her a, quote, bitch skyrocketed to new highs according to an analysis by the Daily Beast. No representatives for any rival presidential campaigns would discuss the issue of, quote, Bernie bro hostility on the record, at least in part, one of official working for another Democratic presidential hopeful said because they didn't want to be on the receiving end of an online walk of atonement. Remember Cersei's walk of shame? The official texted the Daily Beast using a Game of Thrones reference by way of explanation. That's what my mentions would look like. So I mean this article is incredibly patronizing and it's quite frankly childish. You are 
using as an example our hostility, the snake emojis. Oh no! Elizabeth Warren was bombarded with snake emojis. The world is ending. I mean, there are people who are literally fucking dying because they don't have healthcare. And we're supposed to pity Elizabeth Warren because she got a lot of snake emojis. Unreal. And uh, apparently the number of tweets calling Hillary Clinton a bitch skyrocketed. Okay, but did you actually control for who was saying that? Was it Trump supporters? Was it just Bernie supporters? Um, I don't really believe that this is representative of Sanders' campaign because I run in all of these same Twitter circles that these authors don't like, and not one attack on Hillary Clinton was called bitch, at least from the people that I follow. And even if, let's say, that this individual is correct, and Hillary Clinton came out and attacked Bernie Sanders and a lot of people called her a bitch, I denounce that. Of course, I don't approve of that type of sexist language. But do you honestly think it's fair to say that this is representative of Bernie's movement as a whole? Of course it's not. But they're not about being fair. What they are about is communicating a political agenda that harms Bernie Sanders. Because if people see that, you know, Bernie Sanders has this huge crowd of toxic people following him, then they're hoping that maybe, you know, since the direct attacks on Sanders won't turn people off, maybe this will. Except you're wrong about that. We have been bombarded with this Bernie bro attack now for years. And Bernie is still rising. Bernie is still rising. And any time there is a passionate support base around a candidate, this is basically how they're characterized as hostile. But Bernie supporters are not hostile. In fact, in 2016, contrary to popular belief, Bernie supporters were less hostile than Hillary supporters. So, I mean, you can't say with a straight face that this is an issue that is unique to Bernie Sanders, even if Hillary Clinton likes to make it seem like there's this negative, you know, uh, hyper-masculine culture around him. I mean, most of the people supporting Bernie Sanders are incredibly diverse, and we'll get to that, because demographically speaking, to still maintain that Bernie has these white bros following him around, that is factually incorrect, and anyone who still perpetuates that myth is directly spreading misinformation and is being irresponsible. Because look at this headline from Vice. Young women actually make up more of Bernie's base than men do. Polling shows the 2020 candidates' supporters aren't just Bernie bros. This from Vox. Bernie Sanders' real base is diverse and very young. New York Magazine says Bernie Sanders has strong Latino support. Politico says why black voters are backing two old white guys, and this article talks about how Bernie Sanders has the second highest amount of support from black voters this time around now that he has more name recognition. And that is mostly divided up generationally, so young black voters overwhelmingly favor Bernie, and that basically mirrors the white demographics as well. Just older people in general favor Biden, and younger people favor Bernie Sanders. And as Katie Halper puts it in this article for Common Dreams, how come so many Bernie bros are women and people of color? Despite data to the contrary, the media continues to distort Sanders' politics and the diversity of his supporters. Exactly. And that was the last round of Bernie bro smears. So they're still doing it and they will continue to do it because they believe that this will help them defeat Bernie Sanders. This Bernie bro narrative is a myth that was manufactured entirely by the mainstream media 
to smear Bernie Sanders' base, and namely, primarily, smear Bernie Sanders himself. And um, on top of it just being politically convenient for them to do this, I think that uh, Natalie Shore, who is a fellow uh, brotherhood of the Bernard member, explains this perfectly. I think the Bernie bro fixation mostly boils down to prominent media figures being so irrationally annoyed by Sanders supporters in their mentions that they inflate it into a very important political problem to assure themselves their irritation is actually moral righteousness. That is exactly it. People were mean to them online, as people are online in generally to everyone, and um, they are choosing to make it into an issue that's bigger than it really is. Of course, I don't want anyone to be harassed if they say anything negative about Bernie Sanders, but if you honestly think that you can just say things that are incorrect or misleading about Bernie Sanders and not be called out, you're not going to get a pass for that. We will correct the record. This is what elections are about. You know, tensions are high. There's a lot riding on this election. And Bernie's supporters rightfully believe that he is the only person who can save not just the country, but the planet. So, I mean, people are going to respond strong and forcefully if you're going to spread bogus bullshit about Bernie Sanders. I mean, think about what we've had to deal with. We had Joy Reid on MSNBC bring on a body language expert to prove that Bernie was lying. We have people on MSNBC, the liberal network, say that Bernie Sanders makes their skin crawl. I mean, do you not understand why people are angered and hypersensitive to any and all critiques of Bernie Sanders? It's because nine times out of ten, these are politically motivated attacks that aren't really based in reality or representative of Bernie Sanders or his supporters. So, I mean, this Bernie bro myth, even though it's technically been debunked, it will never die so long as it is convenient to the people who want to take down Bernie Sanders. But uh, I don't know about you all, but I'm not going to trust the Daily Beast, who's owned by IAC, who has Chelsea Clinton on the board. And I'm certainly not going to trust the commentary of a former Breitbart reporter who is basically a Republican Party propagandist. No, um, what I'm going to do is continue to advocate for Bernie Sanders as politely as I can be, given the circumstances, and as passionately as I possibly can, and hope that at the end of the day, we win and you all lose, because quite frankly, you kind of deserve it for all of the things that you are putting people through who just want to save and improve the country. It's really sickening if you think about it. These elites think that, you know, um, this... Uh, righteous in indignation here over Bernie bros is going to help their case, but it's only proving why we have to defeat all of you because you don't care about policy you just care about personality and team politics and i'm sorry if people were mean to you online and that your feelings were hurt it happens to all of us but at the end of the day we're going to advocate for our candidate advocate for yours just do that directly rather than trying to smear bernie sanders just you know advocate for the candidate who you support don't do this uh, pseudo journalism where you try to pass a smear of bernie sanders off as objective nobody's buying it and quite frankly at this point you know we're all just sick of it so I think that all of us have learned our lesson from 2016. We should never, ever underestimate our opponents. With that being said, it really is astonishing that Hillary Clinton managed to lose to Donald Trump, given how incompetent he is. Like, he has a way of communicating to people that shows he is at least somewhat politically savvy. He knows that workers in the Rust Belt have been devastated. He knew he had to go to Flint, Michigan when, you know, the residents there felt abandoned by the Obama administration. But time after time, he continues to put his foot in his mouth and prove 
that he is incompetent, and yes, he is beatable. It's going to be tough to beat Donald Trump. I don't believe, even if Bernie is the nominee, it will be easy to beat him, but he has given us a gigantic political gift that I have no doubt Bernie will use against him if he's the nominee. So Trump just put his foot in his mouth by admitting that if he's re-elected, he would be willing to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I can't believe that he would say this in an election year. Nonetheless, here we go. One last question. Go ahead. Entitlements ever be on your plane? Uh, at some point, they will be. We have tremendous growth. We're going to have tremendous growth this next year. It'll be toward the end of the year. The growth is going to be incredible. And at the right time, we will take a look at that. You know, that's actually the easiest of all things, if you look, because it's such if a you're big you're willing percentage. to do some of the things that you said you wouldn't do in the past, though, in terms of well, Medicare. Well, we're going to look. We also have uh, assets that we never had. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, President Trump. Will entitlements be on the table? Quote, at some point they will be. So you've got one year left. In other words, if you're reelected, they will be. That's a definitive statement. At some point, they will be. Thank you. This clip will now be used to beat you over the head with it uh, during the general election over and over again. He just gave Bernie Sanders a gigantic political gift. Wow, what a moron. Especially considering that he said repeatedly in 2016 and 2015 that he's not like all of these other Republicans. He's going to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And now he's on video saying that he wants to cut it. I mean, the attack ad writes itself. Bernie will juxtapose videos of him in 2016 boasting about being the only Republican who doesn't want to cut Social Security and then play this clip where he's saying, actually, yeah, it's going to be on the table. Now, we didn't really need this clip, right? Because anytime Trump comes up with a budget wish list, if you will, it always includes cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and he has tried to do everything in his power to gut social safety net programs. But when you go after the sacred cow of Social Security, as uh, Biden puts it, you done fucked up. And he just fucked up badly by admitting to this in an election year. Like, I'm genuinely stunned that he would be this dim-witted. Does he not think that we are uh, paying attention? Does he think we're just, like, tuning out, focusing only on the Democratic Party primary? No, we're watching you. So I'm, I'm extremely happy that he just said this. I think that he doesn't realize that as the incumbent president, we are going to look for everything to make our case against him and for Bernie Sanders. And he's got to understand that if he goes up against someone like Bernie Sanders with the street cred, who has protected Social Security and advocated for Social Security and even went against Obama, when Obama tried to cut Social Security, I mean, what does Trump think is going to happen? Do you honestly believe that you're going to um, be able to maintain older voters when you're saying you're going to cut their livelihood? I mean, wow, it is mind-boggling that he would say this, but it is Donald Trump, and one of the benefits of a Donald Trump presidency is that he is uh, unfiltered. Now, you know, that's a problem sometimes. I think that the <laughs> tweets to annihilate countries via Twitter, that's problematic. So, you know, having a filter, I guess you could say it has its costs and its benefits. With that being said, in terms of, you know, the optics here, he just admitted he wants to cut Social Security, and guess what? You do not realize what you've done, but you just made a huge mistake, Donald Trump. Thank you. Keep talking, because we're listening.
So finally, we have some good news to report on here on The Humanist Report. So Medicare for All just received a gigantic endorsement, arguably the most important endorsement it could possibly receive. Um, this is something that we need to legitimize our fight for Medicare for All, and we got it at a great time when we have a candidate who is running, who could win, who actually is pushing for Medicare for All. So as Common Dreams writer John Keeley reports, the fight for Medicare for All received a two-handed boost from tens of thousands of doctors on Monday when the American College of Physicians, in a move described as a sea change for the medical professions, officially endorsed a single-payer system among only one of two possible ways to improve the nation's healthcare woes. Representing 159,000 doctors of internal medicine nationwide, the ACP is the largest medical specialty society and second largest physician group in the country overall after the American Medical Association. The ACP delivered its case in a 43-page position paper titled Envisioning a Better U.S. Healthcare System for All, Coverage and Cost of Care, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine on Monday. According to the paper, Quote, although the United States leads the world in healthcare spending, it fares far worse than its peers on coverage and most dimensions of value. Cost and coverage are intertwined. Many Americans cannot afford health insurance, and even those with insurance face substantial cost-related barriers to care. Employer-sponsored insurance is less prevalent and more expensive than in the past, and in response, deductibles have grown and benefits have been cut. The long-term solvency of U.S. public insurance programs is a perennial concern. The United States spends far more on healthcare administration than peer countries. Administrative barriers divert time from patient care and frustrate patients, clinicians, and policymakers. Major changes are needed to a system that costs too much, leaves too many behind, and delivers too little. So this is absolutely phenomenal. And Bernie Sanders almost immediately tweeted about this, welcoming their support here. And this isn't, you know, what I would call a full-throated endorsement, even though they're very explicitly saying they support uh, Medicare for All. They also, you know, suggest that a public option would be a nice incremental step. Although keep in mind, this is, you know, the analysis of physicians, not policymakers, and how this would actually look in practice. Because there is a response to this paper by other physicians who say, Actually, a public option isn't a good uh, bet for anyone because in the end, that's not actually going to give us the cost uh, benefits that actually a single-payer system would. Quote, while the ACP, in its backing of a single-payer approach, also co-endorsed the more incremental step of creating a federally administered public option as a pathway to universal coverage, doctors Steffi Woolhandler and David Hemmelstein, co-founders of Physicians for a National Health Program, argue the latter would be an inferior avenue if the aim is to cover everyone while reducing overall costs. According to an op-ed by Woolhandler and Hemmelstein, also published in the annals alongside the ACP's new position paper, quote, achieving universal Universal coverage would be costlier under the public choice model the ACP co-endorses along with single pair. Unlike a public-private mix of coverage that the public option would represent, the pair right, a single-payer Medicare for All, would allow hospitals and doctors to save billions on billing-related costs each year, and those savings could be repurposed to expand care to millions for less cost than the status quo. Now, to expand on that, the reason why it's better for us when it comes to cost to not do a public option and just do single payer is because, think about this, the reason why administrative costs are so high is because hospitals have to figure out who to bill, right? But if you just have one option, the government being the sole insurer for everybody, it's easy. You don't have to figure out who to bill. 
you build the United States government. You build Medicare, right? But with a public option, you still have public and private in play, and you have to figure out who to build. Therefore, you don't get all of these uh, benefits, you know, the re reduction in administrative costs. That all still remains in place. So the long-term solution really is Medicare for all, period, full stop. And one of the individuals who's part of uh, Physicians for a National Health Program is um, Adam Gaffney. And he helped craft Pramila Jayapal's version of Medicare for all in the house. And he made it so that way it gets rid of uh, private insurance, basically. And it's free at the point of service and comprehensive. That really is the best way. So I'm glad that the ACP endorsed this. Um, I wish that they wouldn't have also signaled support for incremental approaches, although as a physician, you have to understand that their goal is just to simply expand coverage as fast as possible. And from a legislative standpoint, they probably think that it would be easier to just quickly pass a public option and then move on. But understand that um, anything that would possibly cut into the uh, profits of these private insurance companies will be met with a lot of resistance. So there's no point in wasting time trying to fight for a public option when you're going to have to fight just as hard for that as you would for a Medicare for all system, legislatively speaking. And the problem with the public option is that it's basically doomed to fail, which is what a lot of physicians are now coming out and saying, uh, like Adam Gaffney and Himmelstein and whatnot. Because think about this, if you have a public option system and you have a really substantial share of, you know, private offerings in place, what are they going to do? They're going to disingenuously market cheaper, skinnier plans to young people, and that's going to push everyone who's sick onto the public system, while healthy people will just buy private insurance, and then the public option will be overburdened and underfunded as a result, and, um it could possibly fail. And if it fails, then everyone, Republicans, corporate Democrats, are going to point to that failure as evidence that government-run healthcare doesn't work when that's not what we want anyway. So at the end of the day, understand that this endorsement is absolutely massive with the caveat that they also think that a public option might be a good idea. But this is, you know, the analysis from the perspective of people who are experts in healthcare not policy, but when you have people like Adam Gaffney and Dr. Himmelstein doing both, I think that we really are moving the Overton window. When you have all of these doctors, thousands, basically saying, yeah, we support Medicare for all. We support a public option too, but you know, the, the story is Medicare for all. That's what they're kind of really rolling with for now um, as their predominant uh, policy. It really goes to show you that all the effort that we are making it's working, right? There's so many flaws in our healthcare system, and in spite of the media's attempts and politicians' attempts in both parties to crush support for Medicare for All that we've built, we have never had this much momentum. I want you to realize that. We have never, ever had this much momentum, and we've talked about a universal healthcare type of system for more than a century in this country. So if we're going to get it, it's going to be what our generation accomplishes. If we let our foot off the gas when we have this much momentum, I truly believe we will never get a single-pair Medicare-for-all type system. So um, this is just another boost and more reason why we have to move to Medicare-for-all because doctors are prescribing it. I love this graphic, by the way. And um, this comes at a perfect time when we just so happen to have a politician who has a record of advocating for Medicare for All. This is great news.
Hello everyone, I'm here with Paige Christman who is running to represent Oregon's 42nd district for their house, uh, mine actually. Unfortunately, she's not running in my district, but she is here to talk about her campaign because she is a democratic socialist and her campaign is absolutely phenomenal. So Paige, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're very excited about our race. We're running a 100% people-powered campaign with no cor corporate uh, money accepted. We're challenging a uh, centrist corporate Democrat who's funded by the fossil fuel industry, the landlord industry, Amazon. Um, and we're going to be in a really close race here to bring the progressive people-powered values that I know Oregonians share down to Salem with us. Yeah, I love that. And it's so exciting to see people in my home state step up and like run for Congress because Oregon is a very, very deep blue state, so there's no reason why we have like this milquetoast, neoliberal, democratic establishment type of people representing us. Like, we need true progressives, democratic socialists such as yourself, and like I, I'm, I'm just ready for change. And to see everyone across the country in different states, you know, step up, it honestly makes me feel really happy. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your campaign, and if you could talk about the dynamic currently in this race. Is this like a two-way race? Are you the only progressive that's currently running? Um, give us a little bit of details on the situation. Yeah, sure. Um, so I currently serve as the electoral and legislative chair for the Portland Democratic Socialists of America, uh, which basically means I run our lobbying department. Um, but uh, we don't have any money, so we're not very good lobbyists. <laughs> but we try to uh, leverage our people power to influence uh, politics down in Salem. And uh, that that role that I served in this last session um, uh, had me down in Salem, our state capitol, working uh, at the legislature almost every day. And I became progressively more and more frustrated with our Democrat super majority because we have a Democrat supermajority in both chambers of our legislature and a Democrat governor um, that constantly time and time again came up with compromises and half measures and sellouts to a Republican minority um, instead of fighting for the uh, interest of their working class constituents. Um, and that's really why I'm running. Now, uh, I also am a board member for Portland Tenants United, which is our largest tenants union here in the city of Portland. Um, I'm a disabled veteran. I was the first woman to serve as an indirect fire infantryman in the U.S. Army, which is a combat job that was previously open only to men, um, until I was forced out of the military by the Trump administration's trans military ban. Uh, now I'm the first trans woman to run for the state legislature in Oregon's history. Um, and that's really important um, because there's over 7,300 state legislators in the country, uh, and there's only four trans state legislators. So we are very voiceless in this country in our political system. And the consequences of that are very significant for trans people. Uh, for example, just here in Oregon, uh, which is a very blue state with a Democrat supermajority, trans and gay panic defense is still legal. And here in Oregon, trans women are housed in men's jails and prisons. Um, so there's a, a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of damage that our that our marginalization and our and our democracy has caused to the trans community. So it's really important that uh, we continue to fight for the representation that uh, trans Oregonians deserve. Now we are challenging an incumbent Democrat. Uh, his name is Rob Nose. He has um, uh, been in the state legislature since 2014, um, and he is the House Majority Whip. So he's the fourth ranking Democrat in the House. And um, what really pushed me to run was that last session he voted to cut public employee pensions. Um, now, this is a Democrat supermajority voting to cut the pensions of teachers and nurses and firefighters, some of the most valuable civil servants in our state. I find that unacceptable. That's what Republicans typically do in other states. But who needs Republicans when you have Democrats like this? 
So we're going to make sure he doesn't get away with it. And we're going to make sure we replace him with someone who fights for the progressive values that I know our community shares. And this race really is important. Like, it's difficult for me to try to convince people in other states to care about, you know, internal Oregon politics. But this is really important. Like, what I want to point out is the impact that someone like, um, you know, Lee Carter has in Virginia being, you know, a Democratic Socialist elected. And with you taking out a leader in the Oregon Democratic Party and being one of just a handful of trans women elected. I mean, this would be huge. And you would be able to showcase why it's so important that we have democratic socialists in congress because your policies in comparison with average democrats i mean the difference is night and day um so i wanted to ask you about something that i heard from aoc as of late representative alexandria ocasio cortez who don't know she said something that really struck a chord with me because it's so true and she said it just beautifully basically um she says that we don't have a left party the democratic party is not a left party they are a center center right party so i want you to kind of um respond to that and also appeal to people in oregon because even though we're very blue like i personally and I, i'm sure it's the same for you know a lot of people who are just very loyal to the democratic party but explain to them why we need real representation for the left um especially in states like oregon where i mean theoretically we should have so many different progressive policies passed with a supermajority. We're not getting that. So explain why it's so important that we make this distinction between Democrats and the progressive left and socialists. Absolutely. And I agree with AOC that the Democratic Party is not a progressive left party. It is a center or center right party. And here in Oregon, that's especially the case because we are so dominated by corporate money. So Oregon is one of the only five states that allows unlimited corporate campaign contributions. And as a result, we had the most corporate spending in our elections per capita of any state in the country. And that's going to Democrats. Um, there is no sitting state legislator that doesn't take corporate money in Oregon. And as a result, we see corporate policies getting uh, uh, shoved through the state legislature with ease. Um, meanwhile, teachers and nurses and firefighters have to go down and fight for their pensions for months just to lose. Um, now, we saw, just as an example, um, Oregon Business and Industries is the largest lobbying group in the state. They were openly bragging um, last session that they were able to get a list of seven concessions into a student funding package um, that they negotiated openly with the House, uh, the House Speaker and the Senate President. Um, and this is being flaunted openly. So um, here in Oregon, the consequence of not having a true left flank party and, or, or not having a true left flank of the Democrat Party is that our party is dominated by corporations. Um, and I, I think that's unacceptable. I think that the only way to, to change that is to start electing people that don't take corporate money, to start electing people the right way by knocking every door, by building a movement and advocating for the policies uh, that working class Oregonians need to improve the material lives that we live uh, and being unapologetically bold and progressive in doing so. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, and that's great. And I'm so glad that people like you, as well as like Amanda Seabee and Albert Lee, all from Oregon, you know, running for Congress or the House. Um, it's so important because I feel like with the Democratic Party, since they feel so safe in Oregon because it is a safe blue state, they kind of just can get away with not really representing their constituents. They can basically do uh, center right types of policies, uh, not really represent constituents and just feel safe because nobody's going to challenge them. But now, finally, we're all drawing a line in the sand and we're saying, this is not good enough, and it's time that you actually do the bidding of people, not your corporate donors. And it's so frustrating. So I wanted to ask you, so um, in terms of what could be accomplished, let's say you beat um, Rob 
I think that this would be huge. Like, I think this would make national headlines because anytime a socialist takes out, you know, a, a member of leadership, it's just, it's phenomenal and it scares the establishment. But I'm curious, what do you think you would be able to accomplish or what would you push for within that first year in office? Uh, I think we can accomplish quite a lot um, because it would be such a big, um, big victory for, for the left. It would have regional significance and it would be a national news story. And then we can leverage the people power that um, that win creates that moment in, in time where there's so much energy behind that um, to push our agenda moving forward in the legislature. Um, once, once we send that message that nobody is safe, that um, no Democrat is safe, no matter how much money you have, because our opponent has unlimited corporate money, he's raised $130,000 already for a state house race um which is like u.s house numbers and a lot yeah, of other that's states insane. <laughs> um that will send a message that nobody's safe and that um if you don't fight for the principles that your constituents hold dear then we're going to come for you and we're going to take your seat and we're going to replace you with someone who will um and that's the people power we're going to leverage once we're elected we're going to turn out people and and working with the coalition of of grassroots organizations that have endorsed us uh, we're going to turn out people to testify at hearings and uh to protest at the capitol and to go to town halls and other legislators districts and we're going to organize the constituents of other legislators to put pressure on them uh, uh, to to stop this uh, this ever um, um, this ever increasing fall and capitulation to the right because here in Oregon the Republican Party should be insignificant but they keep winning concessions from our Democrats um, and that's unacceptable from a party that uh, has a super minority that that um, is irrelevant in our state politics. Yeah, you know the way that it should be in Oregon is that we should have like centrist Republicans more so than centrist Democrats, because if you can't really win, um, then they should be the ones making concessions. But yet time and again, and this isn't just true for Oregon, it's true across the country in state legislatures. Um, we see Democrats making concessions and meeting Republicans halfway, which is just, it's mind boggling to me. Um, this should not be the case. And I, I think that people across the country are so frustrated to where they are willing to, you know, shun the establishment and vote for someone who isn't necessarily an incumbent who they don't know. So I'm curious because you're working with a lot of progressive organizations. Um, what is based on like your, your personal experience, what are some of the issues that voters are raising? Because I'm personally not familiar with this area. I, I'm not sure. Is this like around Lloyd center area? Um, it's just south of Lloyd Center. Oh, okay. Uh, it, yeah, it's um, Kearns and inner northeast Portland, okay. and then most of inner southeast Portland. Oh, I see. So, I, I mean, I'm sure that the same issues, like, because I grew up around uh, in St. John's, and the same issues, I'm sure, plague that community, that area of Portland, like gentrification, income inequality, homelessness, and whatnot. So, what are some of the concerns that constituents are telling you? Right. So housing, like you mentioned, is is really right at the top of the list. We have a huge housing crisis here in Oregon and houselessness is increasing. Um, and uh, it's been a addressed by our centrist Democrats or attempted to be addressed by throwing more money um, into uh, developments and throwing more money into brand new housing and, and trying to um, open up the zoning to allow um, more dense housing. But that's been a uh, that's led to uh, an a surge in uh, high-rise luxury apartments and housing that may be dense but still economically out of reach for most Oregonians. Um, so, for example, I just moved because my rent is was too high. So I just moved three days ago, and I moved into an apartment um, in inner northeast Portland uh, that is a brand-new construction luxury apartment building, and I'm the first tenant in my unit, and it's a 300-square-foot luxury studio apartment that costs $1,100 a month. 
Now, I don't want to live in a 300-square-foot luxury studio apartment, but that is the cheapest housing that was available on the market in my district at the time that I moved. I had to stay in district, of course. So that's what I'm really angry about is that there's no real affordable housing in my district anymore. And this can be traced to the policies of the city and of the county and of the state um, that have treated this housing crisis um, not as a crisis of human rights, of housing being a human right that's not being met, but as an opportunity for developers and as an opportunity for the development and landlord and realtor lobby that all the state legislators take money from, including our opponent. Um, so we aim to address the housing crisis by uh, investing in dense, green, publicly owned and democratically controlled uh, public housing and guaranteeing housing as a human right, because there are 4,000 houseless people here in Multnomah County, and there are 16,000 vacant rental units. So this is not a supply issue. This is an inequality issue. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, you know, it's devastating to drive through, and you see so much homelessness. I mean, this has certainly been an issue for us in Portland, those of us who grew up here, but I mean, uh, it's increased exponentially and it's it's just devastating it's sad and to see it not get addressed year after year when we have a democratic supermajority it's just it's unacceptable at this point um so i wanted to shift gears a little bit you are running as a democratic socialist proudly so you got the endorsement of the dsa in portland um so i don't think this is going to necessarily be an issue where we live in this in this state but if you had to describe in your own terms to someone in Portland who's a little bit apprehensive about that socialist label, if they've been a lifelong Democrat or even a Republican, what would be the pitch that you make? Because this is something that I'm currently trying to wrestle with myself, uh, because I also identify as a Democratic Socialist. I'm a card-carrying member to the National DSA. So, I mean, like, how do we win those people over who are so afraid about that socialist label, in your view? Right. I think it just comes from having conversations about what we believe in, that uh, we believe in that every head should have a roof, that every child should have a teacher, that every family should have a doctor, um, and that every human being should be treated with dignity and respect and have value outside of their economic value under the capitalist mode of production and what they can produce. Um, and it's through that messaging, I think, instead of um, through uh, types of theory discussions about Marxism that we're going to reach the type of people who have this visceral reaction to labels like democratic socialism. Um, but also we shouldn't be apologetic because um, what we're advocating for is is bold transformative change and some people aren't going to um, uh, like that. It's going to make some people uncomfortable because of their privilege and because of um, their vested interest in the status quo. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that we don't always have to change their minds. Sometimes we just have to um, defeat the, the people who are uh, uncomfortable with what we're offering. Because what we're offering is human dignity and a, a world that treats human beings uh, and places human beings above profit and places the planet above corporate profit. Um, and if, if that makes someone uncomfortable, then it's time for us to move on without them, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why this question is so like important to me is because just like lately, someone in my family had like this visceral reaction to me, um, because they saw an episode of the podcast and then asked me, Michael, are you a socialist? And I'm like, yeah. And the reaction was just like shock. And this person is not necessarily very politically savvy, doesn't really follow politics. Um, I won't say who it is in case they're watching. But like, you know, it just... That may be thinking, like, how do we win these people over? Like, do I just focus on, you know, the policies and not that label? And really, I, I think it is important that we educate people because, like, I saw um, a, a tagline about socialism from Benjamin Dixon, shout out to him, where it's just sharing and caring. And it's funny because we learned that in, like, kindergarten, but yet we grew up in this ruthless capitalist system where people are sleeping on the streets, you know? So, um, yeah, 
I think that anyone in this district, if they know about you and they get out to vote, I think you win easily because the case that you are making is so simple that I don't know how you can go on with the status quo in Oregon with the way that it's going. I don't know how anyone is satisfied with the Democrats that we have in the Oregon uh, legislature. So I want you to make your case to voters. And also, if you can kind of speak to people who don't live in Oregon and think that, you know, Oregon internal politics aren't necessarily important to them. You know, can you talk about just why people in this district should vote for you and why nationally this really is important? Yeah, so this is a hugely critical race because of what's at stake. This is um, uh, a time right now here in, in 2020 when Oregon is building a new pipeline and a new fracked gas export terminal. We're expanding freeways outside of Portland here, uh, and we're moving forward with a neoliberal uh, mode of production that has brought us to the brink of a climate uh, crisis and on the brink of a climate apocalypse. And that's where we're at right now, and we only have a few years to fix this. Um, and and like I mentioned, there's over 7,000 state legislators in the U.S., and uh, most of them are funded by the fossil fuel industry and are funded by corporations that have a vested interest um, that is directly contradictory to working class people. Um, and it's up to us to fight back. And we have to do that not just by running for Congress and having uh, everyone who wants to be the next AOC run in impossible races against incumbents that they can't defeat, but also from the ground up, running for school board, running for city council, running for your state legislature, um, because every single arena that we're not fighting in, our landlords are, and our bosses are, and the fossil fuel industry is. Um, so we need to be fighting on all fronts. And right here in Oregon, this is an incredibly uh, winnable race. We're winning 65% of the voters that we talk to in our canvassing operation. Um, but uh, our opponent has near unlimited money. Um, so we've raised a little over $25,000. Our opponents raised $130,000. Um, so we're going to get outspent by a large, large margin. Um, so it would be greatly appreciated uh, if any of your uh, listeners could go to page2020.com and throw us a couple bucks because it will go a long way. We're powered just by regular, everyday working class people because that's who my only constituent is, is the working class people of this state. Yeah, and that's fantastic. We lost your image. It's just frozen, but we heard everything you had to say. So I will have all the information up on the screen. Paige, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and for what it's worth, you have my endorsement, even though, unfortunately, I'm not living in the area where I can vote for you. But I'm going to be rooting for you, and I'm sure that my viewers are, too. Thanks so much. Well, that's all that I've got for you all today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode or listened this long, as usual, we are not going to end the show without thanking all of our uh, patrons, our supporters through PayPal on humansupport.com, as well as all of our YouTube members. I think we've got about 58 YouTube members in total. So thank you all so much. However you support the show, even if it's just sharing and liking our videos, I assure you that goes a long way in terms of helping us out with YouTube's algorithm. So yeah, the Iowa caucus is uh, approaching. By the time the next episode is uh, public, we'll be all talking about Iowa. So I'm looking forward to that. The 2020 primary is heating up, and I will be right here to talk about it all. I'll see you all next week. Take care, everyone.